Hello my friends, welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek. On today's episode, it was recently this podcast's one year anniversary. It is also my birthday, and so today I am going to be discussing and exploring Thunderbirds. One of my favourite science fiction properties ever. Uh, a nostalgic joy from my childhood and a series that I really think is worth watching if you are a fan of science fiction. So please join me for this episode. First of all, to all my regular listeners who were expecting this episode a lot earlier than this, I just want to say I'm sorry. Um, Things have gotten on top of me recently, um, and despite this meant to be a positive episode for my birthday, which it still is, um, it's now up well over a month later than originally planned. Um, The reason for this, I've just been very busy in real life. I've had a lot of real life changes, um, including a new job, um, and so it has affected my productivity um an ability to stay motivated so i uh, it has affected this episode and the two upcoming ones both of which i was working on as as well as this one um in the time i've been away but i am hoping to get back to some sort of schedule going forward i know i've said this before but mental health is a bitch so you know Things are what things are. Bear with me, and normal service will be resumed momentarily. So for those who don't know, I think I should explain what Thunderbirds is. Thunderbirds is a British science fiction television series created by Jerry and Sylvia Anderson, filmed by their production company AP Films, later known as Century 21, And it was made between 1964 and 1966 using a form of electric marionette puppetry um, dubbed as Super Marionation combined with scale model special effect sequences. It has two series uh, totaling 32 50-minute episodes and also features two movies. It only came to an end, despite its success, um, because Lou Grade, who was the Anderson's financial backer, failed to in his bid to sell the programme to American Network Television. Um, the series itself was incredibly successful. AP Films was um, founded by uh, Jerry Anderson, um, cinematographer Arthur Provis, um, Reg Hill, the producer and cinematographer John Reed, um, as a independent film production company uh, in the fifties. They were fa- founded in nineteen fifty-seven. They became known for premiering the technique of super marionation, uh, a term referring to super marionette and animation. Uh, Super Marionation was a filming technique where the characters of the show were played by electronic marionette puppets with a movable lower lip, 
which would open and close in time with pre-recorded dialogue um, using a Solanid circuit in the puppet's head or chest. Now, the Supermarionation term first got used for their television series Supercar, um, whose final 13 episodes were the first to be credited as being filmed in Supermarionation. Um, Supercar, however, was not the first series produced by AP Films or Jerry Anderson. Jerry Anderson's first television production was the 1957 Roberta Lee's children's series, The Adventures of Twizzle. Now, Twizzle also used a puppet, but Jerry Anderson and um, AP Films decided to try and film it in a different way to how puppet shows were usually done at the time. Um, puppet shows in the 50s generally involved a, a large backing board um, with the character standing in front of it and the puppeteer behind it so that the puppet they could loom over and sort of puppet the, um, the figure. What Jerry Anderson and AP Films did was they built a scaffolding rig so you would have the puppeteer out of the line of sight of the camera completely which allowed for bigger backgrounds that the puppets were then able to move within. Um, and they premiered this in The Adventures of Twizzle, which was 1957-58. Uh, they then continued it with the new series Torchy the Battery Boy in 1960, another children's focus series, before they moved on to their own production, Four Feather Falls, which was a Western series uh, produced in 1960. Uh, Four Feather Falls was where a lot of AP films, sort of bigger names, started to become involved. Um, for example, Barry Gray, who was responsible for a lot of the music made on these shows, the the, the, the very successful run of shows that AP films had. Um, you know, Four Feather Falls was his idea. It was after Four Feather Falls that AP films really hit their stride, though, with a run of. Um, several science fiction series many of which are still quite highly regarded today of which Thunderbirds is probably and arguably the most successful um, but the first one was Supercar made between 1960 and 61 then Fireball XL5 in 1962 uh, Stingray in 1964 which was the first Britain's first British series to be filmed exclusively in colour um, predating a lot of colour television sets um, in Britain. Thunderbirds, as I mentioned, between 64 and 66. And then Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons and Joe 90, which followed that um, before a transition to shows involving more um, live-action elements after the final Supermarination series, The Secret Service, which incorporated quite a lot of live-action um, they then moved to fully live-action shows with um, UFO and Space 1999, both of which also saw quite widespread success in America. Um, Supercar and Fireball XL5 were also successful in America. Um, that was around the time that um, Lou Grade, um, a producer, became interested in the company. In fact, he bought AP Films after uh, Fireball XL5's success. Jerry Anderson once said that um, Lou Grade, um, who you know was a talent agent and television producer, um, 
once had such faith in Jerry Anderson that um, when Jerry Anderson was pitching Thunderbirds and he was a bit nervous about whether Lou Grade would accept it, uh, the proposal before he started the pitch, um, Lou Grade said to pointed apparently pointed to the light bulb in the room and said, "Jerry, you could pitch me a show based on that light bulb, and I would greenlit it. I would greenlight it." Um, this is how much faith Lou Grade had in Jerry Anderson's production. And it was a faith that was very well placed. Um, Supercar and Fireball X and were both very, very popular uh, in their era. They were very futuristic. There was a lot of um, designs in them that were very much evoked from um, Jerry Anderson and Sylvia Anderson's trip to the Epcot Center shortly after their marriage. Um, you know, sort of looking at a lot of the amazing, you know, world of tomorrow stuff that you, you see at the Epcot Center. And very much based on a world where you know, there was a more of a unified world government and it was a very optimistic science fiction. Um, but these two shows haven't really had as much success into the modern day. They're very well regarded at the time for what they are um, and very kind of pulp sci-fi in some respects. But it was Stingray, Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet which have had the most success into the modern day. Sylvia Anderson, his wife, um, had also been a founder of uh, AP Films. She was the secretary um, who joined them, um, then Sylvia Tham at the time, um, before marrying Jerry Anderson. She became part, a full partner in the company um, off the back of Supercar, um, which she had a very heavy hand in writing. It was based on her story. Um, and she continued to help she had a very good working relationship with jerry where they would collaborate on their series together um in fact she also was involved in a lot of the production aspects regarding for example the voice cast um assigning roles um and was obviously helping in the voice work herself you know she went on to play one of the most famous characters in thunderbirds when i get to that in a minute Now, Stingray, the, as I said, the third Super Mario Nation series, fully Super Mario Nation, after the puppet shows um, officially ended with Four Feather Falls. Um, Stingray was co-created by Jerry and Silver, Sylvia Anderson and used the World Aquanaut Security Patrol, um, a futuristic organisation responsible for policing the Earth's oceans. Um and their flagship Stingray, a combat submarine piloted by Captain Troy Tempest, uh, Navigator Phones, and Marina, a mute young woman from under the sea, um, rescued in the first episode. Um, the main thrust of the show was that Stingray and the World Aquanaut Security Patrol ended up in 
conflict with the undersea city of Titanica, ruled by King Titan, who was a, a despot commanding the Aquafibians, uh, a warrior race possessing a fleet of mechanical fish submersibles. Um, the show became known for its incredible special effects, um, and as I said, it was it was in colour, um, which was pretty much unheard of at the time. It was the first British series that was filming exclusively in colour. Um, so despite the fact that colour televisions weren't widespread, it was designed to last. Um, unlike, for example, Fireball or Supercar, which would film in black and white, there was very much a, a view with Stingray that they were looking towards something in the future um, and having a legacy and having this be something that would be watched for years it's also quite interesting for including one of the uh, first disabled characters in children's television um the world aquanaut security patrols commander um sam shaw is a hover chair bound um the reason being that the puppets couldn't walk convincingly um, it, it was a, a limit of the medium and so to accommodate that and try to have the move you know, not walk as little as possible um, Sam Shaw was put into a chair um, but it actually works very well in the series um, the series was a great success, it's very much an action based show and it's uh, signified by the title uh, you know, the opening announcement from Commander Shaw in the titles that anything can happen in the next half hour um, and yeah it's it's a very good show still holds up very very well but it was the success of that that then led to Thunderbirds now Thunderbirds was inspired um, by the November 1963 uh, Wunder von Lengende mine disaster in Germany um, essentially it was a, an iron mine uh, near Salzgitter that was flooded um, with 500,000 cubic metres of water after a pond had broken its ground and the tunnels ended up flooded uh, out of 129 workers, 79 of them escaped in the first few hours. But the remaining 50 miners were trapped. Now, they were obviously rescued. Um, but it required a lot of advanced machinery being bought in from all across Germany. Uh, at one point, one machine that was needed to rescue several of the miners was eight hours away. Um, and was transported to the area. Now, the amazing bravery of the people involved uh, at this mine disaster and the incredible machinery used was what inspired Jerry Anderson to work with Sylvia to create Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds as a concept is uh, a futuristic based show. Um, all the shows were based sort of a hundred years after when they were set, uh, filmed. 
Um, so it's set between sort of like 2065 and 2067. Uh, and it follows the exploits of International Rescue, a organization based around the Tracy family, um, headed by American industrialist and ex-astronaut Jeff Tracy, who is a widower with five adult sons, uh, Scott, John, Virgil, Gordon, and Alan. Um, the whole goal of International Rescue is that they use their incredible machinery, um, primarily the Thunderbird machines, but also other devices that they have, to save human life. Um, um, you know, in on Earth, under the oceans, in space even sometimes... And and yeah, that's the goal of the show. They save people. Um, you know, the, the incredible model work that was already being used in the other Supermarination shows would be what would show these incredible machines and how they save the day. Um, so they pitched it to Lou Grade. Like I said, Lou Grade was fully on board. Gave Jerry his full financial backing. Um, and Jerry went off and started making the show with AP Films. Production had actually been underway for several months. Um, when Lou Grade eventually saw the completed 25-minute version of Trapped in the Sky, the pilot episode. Trapped in the Sky is... One of the most iconic episodes of Thunderbirds. It features the rescue of a futuristic airliner called the Fireflash, which is unable to land due to a bomb being placed on board. Um, and the radiation-based engine um, has shielding that will only last a certain amount of time. So it is the debut of International Rescue as they come to try and save the Fireflash and bring it down to the ground without detonating the bomb. It's incredible. Very, very visual episode. Some truly amazing moments. Lou Grade apparently saw it and Jerry Anderson's told the story several times. Lou Grade saw it, uh, watched it on a, on a cinema screen, jumped up, uh, almost angry um, and said Jerry what have you bought me this isn't a television series and apparently Jerry Anderson panicked for a second like what, what have I done wrong and Lou Grain apparently went up to the screen and turned around and said this is a feature film all of these episodes need to be 50 minutes and he's like I've already shot nine of them and he says go back film more so, with this increase in budget um, and a restructuring of production to expand episodes that had already been filmed or in pre-production and create 50-minute scripts for all the remainder, um, you know, Lou Grade was convinced that Thunderbirds would be this huge success and that a feature film of the series was proposed even before the pilot episode went to air. And this was roughly around the same time that AP Films became Century 21 Productions. And with that, Thunderbirds will go. Five, four, three, two, one. 
So, talk a little bit about what Thunderbirds actually is. Thunderbirds is, uh, like I said, a Super Mario Nation puppet series. Um, and it's a science fiction series. It's set between 2065 and 2067, roughly 100 years from where the episodes aired. Thunderbirds follows the exploits of the Tracy family, um, who form International Rescue. Um, they're headed by uh, industrialist and former astronaut Jeff Tracy. Um, Jeff is a widower. He has five adult sons named after the Mercury 7 astronauts. Um, so they are Scott, John, Virgil, Gordon and Alan in that order um, from oldest to youngest. International Rescue is a secret organisation founded by Jeff to save human life. And the Tracy brothers act as pilots of the individual Thunderbird machines. Which are the five most important vehicles that they have. Um, which are designed to enact rescues um, across land, sea, air and space. And so whenever conventional rescue methods would prove ineffective, the Thunderbird machines would rush into action. Um, so Thunderbird 1 was a blue and silver hypersonic rocket plane, and it was used for fast response and danger zone reconnaissance. Scott piloted this one. He'd usually be the first on the scene. He'd pull out uh, a mobile control um, and set up his equipment where he could guide the Thunderbirds in the rescue, guide his brothers as they save the day, um, often liaising with military types um, or other rescue services. Um, yeah, there was a lot of military focus, mainly because this was released in the Cold War, um, which is one of the things that maybe might put off some viewers. Um, another thing is it's very, very white-focused. All of the main characters are white. Most of the supporting characters are white. In fact, I don't think we get black puppets until um, Captain Scarlet, the following series. Um, partially due to the time it's being made in, I think. You know, it was, it was 1965, 1966. Um, so yeah, that's one thing that does maybe age it quite badly. It's also very male-dominated. Uh, most of the puppets are men. Uh, there are, are some prominent female characters that I'll talk about in a minute. But obviously all the Tracy brothers are men as well. Um... Thunderbird 2 is a green supersonic, so it's not quite as fast, carrier aircraft. Um, it's a, had a very rounded shape. Uh, a lot of people criticised whether it could actually fly, because um, it's this large, bulky body with these small snub wings. Um, so yeah, it might not have been able to actually fly if it was a real vehicle, but obviously this is a science fiction show, this is fantasy. Um, and... You know, suspend your disbelief for it, I suppose. Um, Thunderbird 2's main role, being piloted by Virgil, was to bring supporting rescue vehicles and equipment uh, to the danger zone in detachable capsules called pods. Um, Thunderbird 2, I believe, is involved in nearly every rescue in the series. There's 32 episodes of Thunderbirds. So Thunderbird 2 is involved in nearly every single one. Um, the only one I don't think it is involved in the actual rescue, um, or one of the most prominent where it's not involved in the actual rescue, um, is, I forgot what the episode's called now, 
crisis no trouble in new york um because all all of the episodes have these big disaster movie titles which i'll get to in a minute they're great um and the reason it's not in that episode is it gets shot down by the american uh, navy uh well the world the world navy because there's a it's a unified world government unified world military um and yeah, so it gets shot down earlier on in the episode. Um, and this was as a result of terror in New York City is the episode. Sorry, I've just looked it up. Um, this was done because uh, terror in New York City was one of the episodes, the original nine episodes that had been filmed and then had to have pits added to it to expand the runtime. So the shooting down of Thunderbird 2... Uh, by the USS, USN Sentinel, um, the, the Navy strike vessel, um, was done to explain why Thunderbird 2 isn't in the rescue. Um, which is a good way of extending the runtime and makes for one of the the most memorable scenes in the whole series as Virgil crash lands on Tracy Island. Um, very, very good. Very, very good scene. Um, Thunderbird 3 is a red single-stage-to-orbit spacecraft. Uh, it's piloted alternatively by either Alan or John, um, with Scott as co-pilot when needed. Um, the idea of it being piloted by either Alan or John was because John is the pilot of Thunderbird 5. Well, say pilot. Um, Thunderbird 5 is a grey and gold space station that relays distress calls from around the world. Um, it's basically listening to every radio station ever. So the idea is that um, all you have to do is say into an open channel, calling International Rescue, and Thunderbird 5 will pick it up. Um, which actually plays a part in one episode called Cry Wolf, I believe, where some kids do it on a ham radio, and they call International Rescue because they're playing International Rescue. Um, and their distress call gets picked up as a real call um, because they do it into a, a ham radio and it gets picked up by the space station. Um, John was usually on Thunderbird 5 as the space monitor. He'd live up there, but in the story they did explain that he would swap with Alan every so often. Um, I think John is actually down on Earth for a couple of episodes and takes part in the rescues of the day. Um, so we do see Alan in Thunderbird 5 occasionally, um, but for the most part, uh, Jerry Anderson spoke and said that he hated the design of John. Um, the puppets were all given faces based on actors um, or based on other characters that they'd made models of before, and he said that he found John very all-American looking and didn't like him, um, and found him a bit of a boring character to write for, so they just sort of hid him away on the space station so they didn't have to deal with him which is uh, a bit harsh but very funny I, th I think John doesn't even appear in one of the films uh, if I remember rightly the, the final film Thunderbird 6 I don't think John even appears in it or if he does it's very very brief <laughs> um, you know so that that's an idea of how much um, he wasn't liked Alan um would be involved in rescues quite a lot when he wasn't a member of Thunderbird 3. Um, he'd quite often join Virgil on Thunderbird 2 
uh, and help with rescues that way. Um, there is even one episode in the second series where he takes control of Thunderbird 1 um, for a rescue. One of my favourite episodes, in fact. Um, which is... Yeah, it's very interesting to see Alan given that responsibility. Um, Alan's a character who gets quite a lot of development, especially in the two movies. He becomes the more central focus among the Tracy family um, for the two movies. And then the, the subsequent live-action movie and the Thunderbirds Are Go animated series that came out recently for the 50th anniversary do some very interesting things with him, which I'll be discussing later. Um, Thunderbird 4, the only one I haven't spoken about yet, is the smallest of the craft. It's a utility submersible. Uh, it's usually carried inside Thunderbird 2 uh, in Pod 4 and was piloted by Gordon. Um, again, it's involved in quite a few rescues. They had a lot of underwater sets left over from Stingray, um, so they make a good use of Thunderbird 4. Um, uh, being a, a submersible and you know having having experience with filming underwater um the only problem is it was scaled obviously a lot differently to the water tanks that they had from stingray um you know thunderbird 4 is a much smaller craft than stingray supposedly is um so they had to re scale a lot of things um the tracy family live on tracy island self-titled island um, which is based in the South Pacific. Um, they live in a small villa on the island and all of their equipment is stored inside a hollowed out mountain. Um, I believe it may even be a form of volcano, a, a, a you know extinct volcano. Um, other people live on the island with them, uh, most notably Jeff's mother, who is only referred to as Grandma Tracy. Um, the head scientist, Brains, who is responsible for designing all of the Thunderbird machines. Um, Brains is definitely one of the most famous characters from the show. He has appeared in several adverts on his own. Um, he has a, a very distinctive voice. He has like a, a stutter and a stammer and a couple of other vocal tics. Um, the uh, voice artist David Graham said he tried to base it as though um, his brain was just moving too fast for his mouth. And he couldn't keep up. Um, but it does mean that he stutters a lot on certain words. It's quite pronounced in the series and the live action film. It's toned down quite a lot in the newer series. Um, but it is still there. And it does make him a very memorable character. Uh, he also has these very, very large blue glasses. Um, Brains would usually be quite involved with the rescue, helping the the Tracys kind of suss out what needed to be done, but usually from the island. It was very rare he'd actually go with them on a mission. Uh, Brains' assistant is Tintin. Um, Tintin Carano. Um, she is a young Asian woman. Um, don't think they ever say... Where in Asia they're from? Southeast Asia. Um, Malaysia, I think. Um, for reasons that I'll get to in a minute. Um, her father, Carano, um, also works for Jeff Tracy. He um, he essentially fills a role of a butler, like a manservant, um, and looks after Jeff Tracy. Um, 
it's not explained really why in the show. Um, but one of the prequel comics um, that came out, I don't think this comic was actually released until the 90s, um, but it was part of like the series Bible, I believe, was that um, Grano uh, had saved Jeff's life after he'd crashed um, on Carano's island. And, you know, Carano and Tintin had kept him alive. And Carano had then lost everything. And so Jeff had kind of taken him in and given him a job. Um, is it a bit racially insensitive that the, the only Asian character is the manservant? Maybe. But uh, we'll get to that. You know, kind of kind of gloss over that. I don't think it was deliberately on their part. I think it was meant to evoke... Um, I think he's meant to evoke characters like um, Alfred in Batman or Carto in... Um, Green Hornet. I don't think it's meant to be a negative stereotype. Um, Tintin gets more appearances and more development than the Corano. Um, she has quite a flirtatious relationship with Alan, um, especially in one of the films. Um, she's kind of brains as assistant, but she's also, you know, sort of helping out on missions. She provides some some keen insight sometimes that help them out. Um, the reason the the Tracys live in this remote location as well in the Pacific um, is because everything about their organisation is secretive. Um, so while International Rescue does go and help people, they're aware that their machines are fantastic and in the wrong hands could be very, very dangerous. Um, so they are incredibly secretive, uh, and it's it's made a, a large point quite early on that um, they, oh excuse me, sorry, they cannot be photographed. Like they will they will chase down people who take photographs of their machines, um, and wipe the film footage, um, you know, magnetically or. By using radiation, I'm not sure how they've done it, but they'll, they'll, they'll they will destroy the film footage um, if these craft are filmed. So while people clearly know about the Thunderbirds, the idea is that no one would have accurate looks at their machines um, or evidence of a look at their machines to be able to reproduce them. Now. The reason is is that we're very we're introduced to in the first episode their most persistent opponent, um, who is a master criminal known uh, as the Hood. Now, again, I don't think he's ever given the name the Hood in the series, but it is the name given to him in the comics and in a lot of associated media. Um, the Hood is based in a temple in the Malaysian jum jungle. He has powers of hypnosis and dark magic and is able to exert telepathic control over Karano. Karano is his estranged half-brother. And basically the Hood knows about the Thunderbirds, knows about the Tracys, and wants their machines because of what he can do with their secrets. 
um, you know, being able to sell them and become rich. So he tries to he tries to manipulate the Thunderbirds on several occasions um, to spy on them, and as a result, the Tracys have an agent of their own to protect against that. Again, one of the other more famous characters, two of them, um, and that is their London agent, Lady Penelope Crichton Ward. And her butler, Alocius Parker. Um, they are based in Kent. And they travel in their own specialised machine, which is Fab One. Which is a bright pink, specially modified Rolls Royce. And the, the Rolls Royce was actually... They were actually given rights to use it by the company Rolls Royce. Um... Which is just great. Rolls-Royce Limited uh, supervised the construction of the model. Um, it, the, the name and the colour uh, were both chosen by Sylvia Anderson. She contacted Rolls-Royce to try and get them involved. And yes, they Rolls-Royce supervised the construction of the model. And even supplied um, Century 21 Films with an authentic radiator grill. For close-up shots of the front of the car. Um... And in exchange for their cooperation, the company only requested two things. Which was that the the car had a spirit of ecstasy, which is uh, Rolls-Royce's symbol, affixed to the top of the car. So you can see it on top of the grill as the car drives around. And that the characters affer avoid referring to it with the abbreviation Rolls. It is always Rolls-Royce. Every time it is said in the show, it is always Rolls-Royce. Um... And, yeah, Parker and Penelope are, again, two of the most amazing characters in this show. Um, they get so many memorable scenes. Parker, especially, is hilarious. Like, I used to love him as a kid. I still love him as an adult. Um, David Graham, the voice actor, he reprised the role of Parker for the modern series. So there is only really one voice of Parker in both of the the television series of Thunderbirds. And he is absolutely brilliant. Um, he His voice was based on a barman um, in a pub near Slough who claimed he'd once worked for the Queen... Uh, this this older barman and waiter that worked in a pub. And Jerry Anderson became enamoured with his voice um, because this barman had a tendency of, um, as Jerry Anderson described it, um, dropping his H's and then putting them back on the wrong words. And it makes for a very memorable pattern of speech. Um... And so he sent David Graham, the voice artist, um, to this pub for, for lunch and dinner every day for like a week with the goal of um, getting this waiter in conversation and, you know, picking up his vocal mannerisms. And yeah, it led to Parker being this incredibly memorable character that people love. And yeah, I love Parker. I think he's he's amazing. And yeah, he's a he's a lot of fun. And 
yeah, Parker and Penelope are the ones most responsible for for tackling the hood uh, or tackling any other um, suspicious agents. Um, in a couple of episodes, they even end up needing to be rescued themselves. Um, there's one episode called The Peril of Penelope. Um, the Perils of Penelope. Um, where she goes on the trail of a kidnapped scientist, only to then find herself at the hands of this uh, megalomaniac determined to exploit the the expert's work, and suspended over the London rail, London monorail, uh, and having to be saved by the Tracys, um, which in itself is a great episode. <laughs> and yeah, they they get some incredible episodes together. So as you can see, it's a, a great premise for a show, um, you know. And Jerry and Silver Anderson really put the work in. Um, you know, they, you know, the the longer format episodes definitely help. Um, but also, I think one of the one of the largest helps for this show that made it stand out so much, um, as well as the longer runtime, was that you could improve the characterization between the puppets by giving them more to do. Um, science fiction writer John Peel uh, once suggested that it was the small character touches um, that made the puppet cast of Thunderbirds, as he put, quote, much more rounded than those of the previous series. Um, you know, he compared it to, like, live-action drama. Uh, someone involved in the series, I've forgotten the name of who said this particular quote, um, said that they were also limited in how the puppets were not able to express. Um, so one thing that led that made one creative thing that that led to um which again made the series more memorable is you'd have a lot of very dramatic cuts um so for example there's um one particular episode a uh, day of disaster um a space rocket has fallen off of a bridge while being carried over it the bridge collapsed it's now trapped on the riverbed with the astronauts inside and the rocket is counting down. Thunderbird 4 is in the ocean. He's under the bridge. He's trying to free the rocket capsule before the rocket explodes and takes off. Um, and there's a very, very tense part of the rescue where he's almost there. He's cutting through um, like a piece of a metal girder um, with a laser torch at the front of Thunderbird 4. And obviously the puppet only has like several expressions like they had multiple heads for these puppets with different expressions but you know if if the the puppet of gordon that's focused and concentrating is only one head it's only one expression the expression doesn't change he doesn't blink i mean well no he does blink um but you know there's only so much they can actually do with that puppet so for example you see the laser torch, then you zoom out on Thunderbird 4 and you see the rocket, then you sh cut to the, 
the astronauts inside the capsule. Then you cut to to Gordon's furrowed brow as he's sweating and looking at his instruments. You see him, his hands on the wheel. Then you cut back to the laser torch, and it makes for a very frenetic cutting style that makes everything have feel so much more important and so much more tense than it really is because it's just puppets but it draws you in in a way that really works and you know part of the longer format as well means that a lot of the episodes take on almost like a like i said they're named after disaster films and that's because a lot of them do feel like disaster films like some of the best episodes will spend time away from the Tracys first or if we do have the Tracys they're setting up for what's going to be the issue later on um to go back to one of my favorite episodes uh it's actually from season two this episode um and it's Atlantic Inferno um this is the episode where Alan substitutes for Scott at the helm of Thunderbird one the reason being um Jeff has been invited on holiday by Lady Penelope um so he flies out, leaves Scott in charge. Um, the Meanwhile, the World Navy is testing uh, a nuclear torpedo um, close to an offshore oil rig named Seascape. So while we see Jeff leave the Tracy Island and go off with Penny, um, you know, the Thunder... The International Rescue, the Tracys, are monitoring the situation. You see John listening to the Navy out on their patrol, listening to Seascape, um, and he hears that this torpedo goes awry and sets fire to a, an underground gas jet. Um, so now there's a bit of flaming gas bubbling up from the ocean off the coast of where Seascape is. Um, but by this point, we've been introduced to the crew of Seascape, to the people in the Navy... And we know who they all are. We know who all these characters are. And the Thunderbirds go out and they seal the gas jet. Um, You know, they put themselves into action. Scott makes the decision. And then Jeff chews them out for it. um, And says, you shouldn't have involved yourselves unnecessarily. No one was in danger. And they're like, okay, fine. And it it makes it sound like he's going to come home. Then he decides not to. And he decides, you know, Penny manages to convince him to stay on holiday. But then their early action has actually made the situation worse because now the fire underground in this gas um, gas jet travels and sets light to the oil field underneath Seascape. So gas jets start erupting all around Seascape. Seascape is now under threat. And we've already been introduced to the cast of Seascape before the torpedo even went off. So we know who they are. And you now care about these characters before they're, you know, before we've even, before they're even in mortal danger. We know who they are. We know, we know what they're doing there. We kind of care about them. And it makes it more interesting. And then, of course, the Thunderbirds go off to the rescue. They try to save the people in Seascape. You end up with uh, Thunderbird 1, 2, and 4 all involved in the rescue. And, yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's a great episode. And by the time, you know, you know, Jeff hears about it, he starts travelling back with Penny. By the time he's arrived, the Thunderbirds have saved the day. They've done the job. Um, you know, Thunderbirds always... One thing with it being a kid's show is they always win. They always save everyone. Um, 
I think there's maybe some secondary characters that die, like for example in the episode Perils of Penelope. Um I think one of the hostages gets killed. Um you know, one of the extra characters gets killed. Uh and the hood kills a couple of characters occasionally. Um but for the most part, anyone who's in mortal danger survives. Um because the Thunderbirds save them. Because that's what they do. That's their whole job. And it's it's incredible how the, the tension can just build and build and build. And you get a great episode out of it. Um, another one I really like is City of Fire. Um, from season one. And City of Fire... Again, it's one of the earlier episodes. So I'm not sure if this was one that was extended. Or if it just ended up early but hadn't been extended. Um... If they did extend it, the extension is seamless. Um, with the pilot episode and some of the other early episodes, you can tell where the extensions have been put in because they're usually involving characters that aren't the Tracys. Um, but in this one, City of Fire, um, nothing feels superfluous. Um, so it's the, the idea is basically it's this enormous tower block that's opening, and it's being described as a city and a single skyscraper. Um, hence the title City on Fire. It's got this massive underground car park. Um, and a family are driving there for the opening. Um, on their way, they're nearly run off the road by um, uh, a dri someone driving dangerously. Turns out to be a woman. Bit of uh, casual sexism, but we'll allow it. Um, because it makes for a good episode. Um, she gets pulled over. They end up in the car park. Um, they try to find the monorail, um, and it's, you know, the dad, the mum, and the little boy. And the little boy's playing, and he's having fun with his dad, and, you know, they, they start playing hide-and-seek while the dad's trying to read the map. Um, while that happens, the woman comes in, crashes her car, the car explodes, starts, uh, this raging fire that quickly spreads to the car park as all these cars explode and catch light. That then sets light to the whole tower because it gets into the, the vents. The tower has to be evacuated. They close the monorail doors. They've got these big iron doors that come down. That traps the family. They only don't... The family only end up trapped because the uh, people in the control tower can't see them on the cameras because they're playing hide-and-seek. And then they notice that they're trapped in there. But by that point, it's too late. The tower is already on fire. There's dozens of doors preventing anyone from getting to them. And even if they could, everything is on fire. They've got, like, everyone trying to protect, you know, trying to put the fire out on the tower while they keep evacuating people. They can't get to them. They call International Rescue. And International Rescue, who have been testing this... Um, just so happened to be a, have been testing this cutting device that Brains has invented. The only problem is this cutting device uh, creates a, a gas side effect that, in testing, made Scott and Virgil very ill. Um, but they realised that's their only choice to get through these doors. The amount of doors they've got to get through, they're the only people that can do it. They're the only then that gas is the only technology they've got that can do it. So, by the time they arrive, the tower is already ablaze. I think the tower eventually collapses, which is 
impressive special effects work on its own. Um, they use this device called the Firefly to like push the the burning wreckage away so that they can bring out the mole, which they used to, which is one of their special devices that they used to dig underground. The mole was iconic. It was just this large drill on tracks um, that could tunnel through the ground. And uh, it was probably the most famous pod vehicle, although I think it's only used a handful of times. Um, probably because it also ended up in the end credits. I think it was the only pod vehicle apart from Thunderbird 4 that ended up in the end credits. And yeah, it's definitely one of the more memorable ones. As is Firefly, which gets used a couple of other times. Um, and yeah, so Scott and Virgil take the mole. They go in, they use the gas, they start cutting. They're able to get through every single door, save this family, and get them out. Just as they start passing out from smoke inhalation. They manage to get the family out. Uh, safety, the family... And we get several scenes with this family when they start realising what trouble they're in, that they've been locked in, then they start seeing the smoke and they start feeling the heat, and they're panicking. But the dad is trying to keep keep his wife and his son calm, and it's really relatable, um, especially as an adult watching that, and it's it's great. Um, you know, nail-biting stuff, especially as a kid. Because you're watching this like, oh, they're going to do it. And, you know, when the scott and virgil are um cutting through these gas doors these uh these indicator lights these danger indicator lights on their equipment goes off just as it did when they were testing and you think oh no they're gonna pass out just like they did in testing but they don't and it's because of the heat the heat changed the chemical composition of the gas as brains explains at the end and so it didn't affect them negatively in fact, the opposite was true. They actually said they felt more energised. And... Yeah, it's just a great example of what can be done because you get these amazing character moments or this amazing building tension, you know? Um, and that's just true of most of the... Most of the series, you know, you get these amazing moments with the people in danger before the Tracys come to rescue them. And you usually get quite interesting stuff with the Tracys themselves. Um, they are somewhat static as characters in the original show. Um, and that's definitely something that's vastly improved in the modern show, which I'll get to when I talk about that. Um... But yeah, it's just, it's an amazing show. And I absolutely love it. Um, and I think if you are a fan of science fiction or just good adventure storytelling, you are hard-pressed to find something better than the original Thunderbirds episodes. Um, they are great they have stood the test of time for a reason because these shows they premiered in the 60s they did really well um the only reason they got cancelled was because lou grade trying to find uh, an american distributor uh, was unsuccessful and so he cancelled it and told century 21 to work on some to move on to something else but jerry anderson always said that thunderbirds was the thing that he was the most proud of and i think a lot of his his contemporaries and colleagues at Century 21 agree. 
you know, they they moved on to different things. Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons, the next series that followed, um, changed the style of puppets. Um, you know, they they redistributed the electrics so that the the characters were now more in proportion. Um, so, for example, uh, the Thunderbirds characters have like quite large heads um, and hands in proportion to their bodies. They're kind of almost caricaturish. Whereas, like, Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons, the characters in that and all the subsequent puppet shows are in realistic human proportions. So they have much smaller heads in comparison to their bodies, um, just as an adult human would. Um, and, you know, that just moves... It was all done by moving the mechanisms around inside the puppet. So, like, the lip-sync mechanism, now instead of being in the head goes into the chest and is connected to the the mouth via a cable um which allows them to shrink the heads and make it natural proportions um and you know it's a good show i do like captain scarlet i think it does a lot of things very very well um and it was a very, very dark series in comparison to Thunderbirds. Like, a lot of people die because the Mistrons kill people to then replace them. Um, and then those Mistron replacements invariably end up dying in horrible ways as well. Um, and occasionally, um, the forces of Spectrum, so Captain Scarlet and his allies, lost. Like, occasionally. It was very rare, but on occasion, the Mistrons won. It was a it was a war. It was an ongoing war story, but it was very very different, and it was not the success that Thunderbirds was. And you know, even the merchandise, even the the machines, were not as memorable as the Thunderbirds. You know, the vehicles that Spectrum had, they had some great vehicles. They had a a tank thing called the SPV. They had the Angel Interceptor. But it wasn't Thunderbirds. It wasn't the Thunderbirds machines, the Mole, the Fab One, uh, Firefly. All these amazing machines that kids had been enamoured with for the past couple of years. And... Yeah, it's, it's a shame. Um... And eventually Jerry Anderson moved away from puppets. He, you know, he felt that puppets had been kind of typecast for Century 21. They'd been typecast for puppetry. And it was the only thing they seemed to be able to get finance for. Um, so they tried to make it look as close to live action as they could before they then moved into live action. Um, and, you know, they, they, they did move successfully into live action with shows like UFO and Space 1999. Um... But Jerry Anderson, even before he died, always said, you know, he managed to remake Captain Scarlet and did a CGI series for Captain Scarlet. But he always said the show that he wanted to come back to and redo was Thunderbirds. And that was helped in part by Thunderbirds having this huge wave of popularity in the early 90s, which is when I started watching it, which is when you had the 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 Tracy Island toy being the must-have toy that Christmas that caused riots in the UK um, that that led to a very famous Blue Peter episode where they were saying, hey, here's how you can build your own Tracy Island. Um, and, 
you know that I think that's still the most watched Blue Peter episode in history. Um and and then of course that then led to again another wave of popularity for Thunderbirds about 10 years later which is what led to the the live action film which has been in development since the 90s finally um getting somewhere and while the live action film has its faults it's not terrible um as I'll get to in a minute um And when the 50th anniversary happened in 2015, you know, that was it. They 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 finally did a brand new Thunderbirds series, Thunderbirds Are Go. And having recently finished it for the first time, I think it's an incredible love letter to the original Thunderbirds for reasons I'll get to. Um... But I think the original Thunderbirds is well worth your time. It has, you know, Century 21 were incredible. I mean, the people who were involved went on to work on amazing things. Derek Meddings, who created the Thunderbirds, went on to do miniature and model effects for uh, the James Bond franchise in multiple films, uh, his final film being Goldeneye. Um, you know, he died while Goldeneye was in post-production. But he also worked on the Superman film series, the Christopher Reeve Supermans. You know, the Golden Gate Bridge that gets destroyed, that was him. He he built that. He he filmed that sequence. You know, he designed it. Um And it was because of techniques that he created on Thunderbirds. The techniques that were used by Century Century Twenty One influenced and um you know, inspired techniques that were then later used on things like Star Wars or the Super Sentai franchise in Japan. Um, you know, the the way of filming large models and creatures as, like, miniature things. You know, the the parallax rolling with the, the ground and the sky. Um, you know, that's something I've seen used in multiple projects, and it originated on Supermarionation. They they even did a thing called Dirtying Down, you know, the which is something Star Wars made incredibly famous, because it was the idea of the world being lived in, nothing being shiny, everything looking like it had been around for a while. And that was something that was very, very important to George Lucas on the set of the original Star Wars films. And it originated... Or at least very, became popular with the equipment in Stingray Thunderbirds. You know the models they created for Thunderbirds. Um, you know these amazing models of things that they rescued, things like the Sidewinder, the Crab Logger um, from the episodes Pit of Peril and Path of Destruction. These amazing machines were not only built and created. And, you know, built, designed and created to look fantastical and to look futuristic. But they were then built and painted, but then dirtied. Like, they'd be taken and dirtied. There'd be grime and mud and all sorts of other things added to them to make them look realistic. To make them look like they were a part of this world. And it worked and it added so much realism and... 
it inspired so many other people to do the same thing with their own stuff years later. Um, you know, people who were involved in Century 21 went on to work in Hollywood and worked on big budget films providing miniature effects, you know, um, or, or created other shows in the UK. Thomas the Tank Engine, um, when it back when it was using middle, uh, miniature effects in the 80s right through until the, the early 2000s, that was worked on in part by people who had worked at Century 21, people who had worked on Thunderbirds. They, they were involved in that show. You know, not all of them, but some of them, definitely. And, you know, anyone who is a fan of miniature filmmaking can appreciate the artistry that's in that show. You know, even with it being a kid's show. And, you know, that effort to realism is something that even extends now to, to CGI. Um... And it all originated in things like this. So yeah, Thunderbirds is well worth your time. And I heartily recommend it to anyone. Absolutely anyone. And I really think um, that if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. You should pick up just any episode. Some are better than others, um, I will admit. Most of the episodes I've listed by name already um are great um some like uh the duchess assignment or attack of the alligators or the cham cham are a bit cheesier um <laughs> but um but they're still fun um so yeah pick an episode start with the opening start with trapped in the sky see how you feel that's not your thing, maybe watch, I don't know, City of Fire, or Sun Probe, or Pit of Peril. You know, one of those other early episodes. If you're still not into it, fine, fair play, you tried. But I think you'll like it. I really do. There's a reason it's so good. And, you know, when the Thunderbirds music, the, the big tension music ramps up, um... You know, towards the end of Trapped in the Sky, when the fire flash comes in to land on the the elevator cars that Thunderbirds Thunderbird 2 has brought to the danger zone, and you see Virgil driving, and the tense moments as the fire flash is coming into land, and bits are exploding, and you really wonder whether he can do it, whether he can save these 400 people trapped in the plane. Yeah, it's really hard not to get caught up in it. Because that... Everything just builds brilliantly. So yeah, give Thunderbirds a try. I'm going to talk in a little bit about um, attempts to revive Thunderbirds, uh, specifically the 2004 movie and the 2015 Thunderbirds Argo series, um, which I have things to say about them both. But first, I just wanted to cover the fact that Thunderbirds actually had an expanded 
universe of tie-in media, even in its own era. Um, which is something that was kind of unheard of at the time. For example, um, there were comic strips published in uh, a magazine called TV Century 21. Um, now, the majority of the strips in TV Century 21 were all set in a shared future history. So even strips without a related television series tied into it, for example, Special Agent 21, which was set in the relative past and depicted the formation of the World Space Patrol, which then got seen in Fireball XL5. So they were all kind of set in the 2060s with each of this newspaper-style issue covering the top stories of the decade and the top stories would be the, the events that we read in the comics. Um, and Earth was depicted as having a unified world government which was based in the fictional Unity City in Bermuda and incorporated both a president and a senate. And basically this shared setting um, combined the narratives of all of the Jerry Anderson and Century 21 um, series. So Fireball XL5, Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons, Stingray, Thunderbirds, Joe 90, they were all in this same shared universe. So essentially these, these, the Super Mario Nation series had a almost a shared universe before it was cool kind of thing. Um so yeah, the this this future Earth, the world government had access to Spectrum from Captain Scarlet, the World Navy and the World Aquanaut Security Patrol from Stingray, the World Space Patrol from Fireball XL five, as well as International Rescue and the Thunderbirds. And it meant that these characters could cross over. And the Thunderbirds comics didn't feature much crossover, although I think there was a little bit. Um, but obviously there was the Thunderbirds and uh, Lady Penelope comics, which tied into each other, obviously. Um, but also... But it happened more with later series. So, for example, Fireball XL5 appeared several times in the Captain Scarlet comics. Um various commentaries established backstories for characters that connected the various series um so for example i think that was where it was revealed that gordon trained with the world aquanaut security patrol from stingray and that um one of the spectrum officers in captain scarlet was a member of the world space patrol from fireball xl5 so it was all It was very, very clever. It um, it didn't necessarily contradict any of the TV series themselves, um, but obviously I think a lot of people are of the opinion that, in the modern day especially, that canon only counts what's on TV. For example, with Star Trek, um, the Star Trek canon is just assumed to be what makes it onto televised or filmed instalments. Um, rather than the novels, for example. One recurring plot element in these comics, for example, that uh, uh, featured quite prominently in the Thunderbirds and Lady Penelope strips was an antagonist Eastern European nation um, that was completely fictional, um, of Bereznik. And that was a country that was not part of and was thus hostile to the world government. 
And yeah, they appeared quite regularly in some of the Thunderbirds and Lady Penelope strips as an antagonist um, linked to the Hood as well as several other. The Hood had a much more prominent role in the comics as well. He was usually given a, an antagonist role um, in their stories quite a lot. Um, like there's one particular comic strip called Brains is Dead um, where he fakes the death of Brains and uh, seizes control of Tracy Island. Um, and they, they sort of mind-wipe him and dump him out in the jungle afterwards. It's very... The, the, reading these comic strips now, they, they don't read like what most people would think of as modern comic books. They read like a lot of British adventure strips, um, which you don't really get anymore. Um, a lot of British comic strips are sort of released in small installments. Like most of these, these Thunderbird strips, they're two or three pages at a time. And they would appear in like a weekly comic book and they build up to a full, like the completed strip, you know, the completed story might be about 20, 30 pages. Um, but you'd build it in installments over several weeks. And what that means is that you could then put, you know, in the, in the space of one magazine, one comic book, you could fit multiple strips Um Whereas American comics don't tend to do that. American comics are a single magazine with, you know, a full story for Captain America, for example. At least in the 60s, anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of familiar if, you, if you're familiar with British comics at all. If you're more familiar with American comics, it might be something a bit jarring. They are very good. Um, they have been collected and reprinted several times um, in hardcover volumes. I actually own both of the hardcover volumes, um, and they are very good. They're very good adventure comics, but I also remember reading them in the 90s because Thunderbirds magazine got published in the 90s when all these shows were back on TV. So I used to get that, and that had... Uh, not only new content and some new comic strips which elaborated on things in the series bible um so for example there was a whole comic strip in the 90s um about how international rescue was formed which focused on jeff tracy how he lost his wife how he met carano how he met brains how he created the thunderbirds how he got the ideas to form international rescue his first encounter with the hood it was very very clever very very good um and, you know, that was stuff that was in the series Bible but had never been explored uh, until the 90s. And also in the 90s was when you got reprints of these original 60s comics. And, you know, compared to the modern comics of the time, they, they looked kind of washed out. They've got a lot of... They're not quite black and white, but the colours are somewhat muddy almost. They're kind of impressionist. They're like watercolours. There's a lot of big chunky colors and not a lot of fine detail which is kind of hard to explain um when this episode goes up on youtube i'll try and find a a picture of what their comic book pages look like to try and illustrate this um but um yeah they are good they're good good little comics very interesting little comics um 
But the biggest way of building on Thunderbirds, at the time anyway, in the 60s, was the launch of the two Thunderbirds films. Now, the first film, Thunderbirds Are Go, came out in 1966. It was filmed alongside the second season of the show and is one of the reasons why the second show is only six episodes. Uh, that's because a lot of effort went into this film. A lot of the budget went into this film. It was written by the Andersons, uh, Jerry and Sylvia. It was directed by David Lane, who worked on a lot of the Century 21 stuff. Um, and, yeah, it's it's an interesting film. Um Plot-wise, the film concerns the spacecraft Zero-X, which is this amazing multi-stage plane rocket thing which is being sent to Mars for the first human mission to Mars um, and features Captain Travers and his four-man crew. And the hood stows away on its maiden flight to photograph the wing mechanism. Shortly after liftoff, however, the hood traps his foot in the craft hydraulics, which jams them and also leaves his foot bloody. It's quite horrifying, actually, for a, uh, to watch as a child. Um, but it jams the hydraulics, which then means that Zero-X can't make orbit, which then means it goes out of control and crashes. The astronauts manage to escape uh, in an escape pod. The ho hood parachutes to safety and Zero-X crashes into the ocean and explodes. Um, a couple of years later, the Inquiry Board conclude that Xerox was sabotaged, and a second Xerox has been built, and another mission to Mars is planned. Mars is, they're waiting for Mars to reach its optimal orbit, so that it's a shorter journey. Um, and one member of the Security Board says that to prevent another sabotage, International Rescue should be present at the launch to give security. So that's what happens. Uh, you know, Scott and Virgil and Alan all go through and, and help Zero X at different stages of its launch in Thunderbirds 1, 2 and 3. Uh, Lady Penelope poses as a reporter at the press conference and interviews um, the crews, especially Lieutenant uh, Captain Travers. We see her interview Travers. And she gives them all a St. Christopher brooch. <laughs> which has a concealed homing device. Um, obviously, St. Christopher, patron saint of travellers, so it fits. Um, on the launch day, the one of the homing devices isn't working, um, even though the person is on board the Zero-X awaiting liftoff. So Scott goes in and unmasks him, reveals him as the Hood in disguise. Uh, the Hood flees, gets chased by Penelope and Parker, uh, jumps into a speedboat helicopter. It's quite a thrilling little chase. Parker shoots down the helicopter with the machine gun and the hood is presumed dead. Meanwhile, the kidnapped doctor that he um, impersonated is found and returns to the Zero-X and the spacecraft gets launched without further incident. Um, mission complete. Penelope invites Scott and Virgil to join her at a nightclub called The Swinging Star. Um, Alan... Missed the memo because he was off, obviously up in orbit, helping Zero X um, on its way, and returns to Tracy Island and gets 
and feels kind of unappreciated and hard done by when Jeff insists that he stay at base while the others go out for the night. And so asleep that night, he has this very surreal dream um, where he and Penelope travel to a fictionalised version of the Swinging Star, which is located in space. And it features a musical number with puppet versions of Cliff Richard Jr. and The Shadows, who are obviously a popular band in the 60s. And it's so bizarre. Like, I remember watching this as a kid and thinking it was bizarre. But at the same time, it's full of these amazing puppetry effects and some really clever things that make it visually stimulating while at the same time being like, what does this have to do with Thunderbirds? It's like, even the opening of the film, the launch of Zero X... It's a good 20 minutes before we get introduced to the Thunderbirds in the film because the of how l- long and delicate the uh, assembly of the Zero X is. It's all these different parts that come together and kind of form the one plane. And it's... Yeah, it's... Very bizarre. Alan falls out of the swinging star in his dream, lands, you know, wakes up to find he's merely fallen out of bed. Um, But, you know, he has this nightmare that he's fallen off of the swinging star and falling back down to Earth, which in itself was pretty scary as well because it's punctuated by Penelope's kind of haunting, echoing laughter as she's laughing at him as he's falling. Um, And, yes, I have a uh, fear of heights, you know, so... That might be another reason why it bothered me. (laughs) Um, Anyway, after a six-week flight, Zero X reaches Mars. Uh, They touch down in their lander. They're investigating the surface. They find these rock snakes. Uh, Well, these, like, coiled rocks. Um, They blow one of them up to take samples. And... As they're going to do that, the other structures come to life and they're revealed to be like these rock snakes and they start firing energy balls at the Zero X. So Zero X has to uh, escape and start back to Earth. Um, So again, it's kind of a a small disjointed thing away from the Thunderbirds. Not in the same way that the episodes used to do where they sort of build up tension for the rescue, but yeah, kind of bizarre and weird. Um... Uh, anyway, Zero X makes its way back to Earth, and one of the lifting bodies, the thing that's meant to help it through the atmosphere, as I said, it's like a multi-stage rocket, um, fails to connect and damages a whole load of systems when it hits the Zero X, including flight control and the escape pod circuit. So the astronauts aren't able to escape, and the Zero X is due to impact somewhere in Florida, so it's going to take out a whole town. So Jeff launches Scott, Brains, Virgil, Alan, Gordon, all in Thunderbird 1 and 2. They all go uh, to rescue the Zero X. The town in Florida is completely evacuated. Um... Alan repairs the circuit with Brains helping him by being, like, lifted into Zero X's undercarriage. Um, he completes the task uh, to fix the the escape pod and jumps out just as the astronauts eject. And then Zero X crashes into the town. There's massive explosions, you know, which are fantastic to watch. You know, it's the, the big fiery doom at the end of the movie. Um... And then Alan gets picked up by Penelope and Parker after parachuting down. 
and they take him and the whole town and uh, the whole family, sorry, and Brains and Tintin, and they all go to the real Swinging Star. Um, and it, they're all there with really bizarre facial hair to disguise who they are. It's it's really weird. <laughs> like Virgil's got this big handlebar mustache going on. Um, uh, Jeff's got this massive bushy beard. Um, yeah, it's very bizarre. And they all kind of toast Alan as a hero and, you know, roll credits. And... <sighs> Watching it as a kid, I really liked it. Watching it as an adult, I can see how flawed it is as a movie. Like, the narrative is all over the place. But the... The visuals are fantastic. You know, if you like the model effects of Thunderbirds, you're going to love Thunderbirds Argo. It's great. Um, but obviously, you know, while it was this... this, While the reviews were praising it at the time of being this quite successful transfer to the cinematic from the TV series, and bear in mind as well, this would be the first time a lot of people would have seen this in colour. Um, you know, colour TVs weren't very common, despite the fact Thunderbirds was filmed in colour. Um, so this would be the first time a lot of people were seeing Thunderbirds in colour. Um, but it drew this, like, really lukewarm public response and, as a result, ended up being a box office failure. And it got criticised for the real minimal characterization, the lengthy effect shots, the fantasy dream sequence with Cliff Richard. And... It's a shame because I think even the bad stuff is still good. Like, there's still good things in there. You know, things that you can enjoy about it. Um, might just be my view. I'm not sure. But, um, obviously, United Artists, the distributor, were quite surprised that it underperformed. And they were really confident that Thunderbirds did have big screen potential. Um, so they ordered a sequel. Uh, Thunderbird 6, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but also, Zero X um, continued on after this film as well. The Zero X lander appeared in the first episode of Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons. And the twenty TV Century 21 comic strip ran a Zero X comic strip until 1969, focusing on Travers and his crew. So, and, you know, their missions to Mars and things like that. So, it's, it introduced some things that were still... still became part of this greater narrative. Um, despite the failure that it was. I'm not sure if the Zero X comics have ever been collected and reprinted. I'd love to read them, because I don't own those. Um... But yeah, if they have ever been reprinted anywhere, I would love to read those. But yeah, Thunderbirds Ago, it's um, <clears throat> not a great film. Not a great film. A great visual treat, worth watching at least once. Um, you know, especially if you're a fan of the show. But not, not a great film. Thunderbirds 6, on the other hand. Thunderbirds 6 came out in 1968... Uh, again, it was written by the Andersons and directed by David Lane. And 
it was the last Thunderbirds thing in the original canon. Um, and I quite like it. It has a special place in my heart. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, it uses some new puppetry effects, but it's mostly using the original design of the puppets because obviously the uh, Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons was well into production at this point and used completely different puppet designs. Um, but this still uses the Thunderbirds versions, although I think they have been tweaked slightly. Like, they do look slightly more in proportion than they did in the original show. <clears throat> and, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll get into the plot, then I'll discuss what I think makes it so good. So, essentially, the New World Aircraft Corporation in England gives Brains an open brief to design a revolutionary new aircraft. Okay, now they don't know it's brains. He's he's disguised, but they know that he's the person who designed the Thunderbirds. Brains suggests an airship, which prompts howls of laughter from them, including a, a an amazing scene, which I think has become a meme because of its horror potential, which is these the puppets with like these heads molded into like raucous laughter. And it's, it's yeah, there's, there's something nightmare fuel about it, but it's at the same time, it's very funny. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, the proposal gets accepted and they do actually build his airship. They call it Skyship One and it is a fully automated airship powered by an anti-gravity field. Okay. Now, International Rescue are, offered, are invited as guests for the maiden flight and obviously... They are going on a private round-the-world trip with pre-programmed stops, and it's obviously heightened security because they know they're International Rescue. And representing International Rescue is going to be Alan, Tintin, Lady Penelope, and Parker. Brains, meanwhile, who was invited, gets forced to remain on Tracy Island because Jeff has asked him to design a sixth Thunderbird craft because Jeff has this feeling that they need a Thunderbird 6. He doesn't know what Thunderbird 6 will be. Um, you know, it's hard to see a gap in their expansive arsenal of craft, but he says, yes, we need a Thunderbird 6 and wants Brain to design one. So, working without a specification, Brains, throughout the film, produces a range of concepts and all of them get rejected. In fact, Brains even rejects one, predicting what Jeff is going to say before he even shows it to Jeff. It's quite funny. <clears throat> Alan and Tintin fly to England in an old Tiger Moth biplane. Um, Tiger Moth is like a World War One-era biplane. Um... Well, no, sorry, a bit later than the World War One, nineteen thirties biplane, and they join Penelope and Parker before departing on Skyship One. However, the group become unaware that Captain Foster and the stewards have been murdered and replaced by agents of a character known as Black Phantom. Now, Black Phantom could possibly be the Hood, because 
he has a different voice and he has a full head of hair, which the hood was bald. However, he uses the hood's puppet. Like, it's a redressed version of the hood's puppet. We never see him use his, like, his magic eye powers or anything like that that suggests he is definitely the hood. But it would make sense that he's the hood out for revenge. And I think Sylvia Anderson suggested he was, but other people have suggested he wasn't. So this is a big contention in the fandom about whether the Black Phantom is the Hood or if the Hood died. Because it's like, the Hood could have possibly died in Thunderbirds Are Go and the Black Phantom could be a completely new person. Um, but at the same time, the Hood, every time in the the show, he encounters the Thunderbirds and is believed dead. That's happened multiple times. You know, he has this amazing crash and we think, oh, he's dead, but he's not. He comes back. So, who knows? And the Black Phantom is operating from an airfield near Casablanca. And as the ship is automated, the imposters aren't really required to demonstrate any detailed knowledge of its systems. And so, thus, they're able to avoid raising any of the guests' suspicions. But basically, the Black Phantom wants them to record Penelope... And they, he has a message that he wants them to send to International Rescue using Penelope's voice. So they have to record everything Penelope says to structure this message. It's quite clever. It's very James Bondian. Uh, and that's not really a word. Um, you know, it feels like a secret agent plot um, that you'd get, which I think is great. Um so Skyship One starts going around the world and it goes around the world in a very bizarre way. Like they start at New York, then they end up in Egypt and then they go somewhere else and then they end up in Paris. And, you know, if if you actually look at the geography of where they're traveling throughout the movie, they don't seem to be following any sort of logical order. Um, <sighs> anyhow, Penelope finds a bugging device in her bedroom. And... You know, she she realises that she's being bugged, but that Alan and Tintin aren't. So the only areas that are being bugged are her bedroom and any of the communal areas. Um, and she, you know, she runs the shower in the bathroom and has the others meet her to sort of discuss everything. And they realise that something's up, but they're not sure what. Okay. Parker starts investigating on Penelope's order. Uh, while they're all stopped at the Swiss Alps and the crew are obviously off the ship, Parker discovers the editing equipment. But before he can do anything about it, the message is sent. Okay? The message gets completed and sent. Um, so obviously John picks it up on Thunderbird 5, relays it to Jeff, and the message is basically asking Jeff to send Thunderbirds 1 and 2 to the airfield in Casablanca. Um, where, you know, the Black Phantom and his men are going to hijack the craft. So, you know, Jeff, thinking that, you know, he's got an instruction from Penny, he trusts Penny implicitly, so launches one and two. Alan realises that they're flying into a trap, and Penelope is able to forward a warning um, to Jeff just in time. You know, because Alan basically, once uh, the message has been sent and they return from the Alps, while Thunderbirds 1 and 2 are in transit, they basically realise that all the bugging equipment is gone. So Alan realises whatever the message they wanted is, they've got it. 
and then Alan deduces who is the one person who would trust anything you say no matter what and they realise it's Jeff so that's who the message is for so the Thunderbirds land at the airfield and because they've been warned Scott and Virgil destroy the entire base with like rocket launchers and guns which you know I don't know why those two ships have those <laughs> Um, and then they fly off and rendezvous with Skyship One because they realise something's up and, you know, Alan and Penny and all the others might actually be in danger. Aboard the ship, Alan, Penny and Parker engage in a shootout with the imposters, but they get forced to surrender when Tintin gets taken hostage. The anti-gravity system gets damaged in the fighting. They have this. The anti-gravity system has these giant rings that are spinning round in this big open room. It's a very, very impressive set. And they're having, like, a gunfight in it. And they, they have to wait until the rings reach a certain alignment so they can shoot through them. But you hear bullets keep ricocheting along the rings. It's a very clever piece of sound design. A um, lot of fun. And, yeah, the anti-gravity system gets damaged, so the ship starts to lose altitude. And the Thunderbirds meet up with it, but obviously they realise it's much lower and it crashes on top of a radio mast at a missile base near Dover uh, in England. And it's balanced really precariously on top of this radio mast, and its anti-gravity field is weakening. So Scott, Virgil, and Brains are all basically, you know, rush to the rescue um, to, to save everyone before the ship collapses onto the base. Um, but Scott... And Virgil are unable to get any closer in the Thunderbirds without their thrusters tipping Skyship 1 and none of Thunderbirds 2's pod vehicles are light enough to land on it. So Gordon comes up with a suggestion, which is to put Brains in the Tiger Moth and fly him up to Skyship 1, which is great. And I also love it because Brains finally gets a Thunderbirds outfit. Like, throughout this entire series, Brains has been deployed on multiple rescues, but he's always in his civilian clothes, whereas the others all have a uniform. In this, he gets his own Thunderbirds uniform, and it has a brown sash. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like that. It's cheesy, but I love it. Um, so, yeah, he lands the Tiger Moth on Skyship One's top deck to get all the passengers and crew. Uh, Foster and his men still have Alan and the others at gunpoint. Um, you know, they they manage to set a trap. They get brains out of the Tiger Moth so that they can take it over. Um, you know, brains kind of smuggles Alan a pistol. Um, it's all very clever, very, very tense. And they manage to... You know, Foster gets into the cockpit. He has Penelope hostage. And he tries to take off, but gets shot dead by Alan. Right? So the Tiger Moth then launches with all of the International Rescue Agents and the last two imponders, imposters clinging on onto the wings and the landing gear. Right? So the Tiger Moth flies off and, and disappears. Skyship 1 gets left, crashes to the ground. The missile base has been evacuated by this point, And you get this massive chain reaction as everything that we've seen on the missile base explodes, which is incredible. Um, 
and yeah, probably one of my favourite special effect sequences in all of Thunderbirds ever. Um, <laughs> the remaining imposters all get killed by a shootout on the Tiger Moth. Stray bullets puncture the fuel tank, uh, which means Penny has to make an emergency landing guided by Alan. Uh, the way some of the um, the the imposters like the Foster's men the way some of them die is actually quite drawn out and quite yeah it's it's quite brutal for for what is this ostensibly a kids movie um you know penny tries to bring it in for a landing they skirt along this empty motorway uh they crash into a tree where parker gets sort of lost um, trapped in the tree and eventually they crash into a field um but yeah, they're all safe. Everything, everyone's safe, and yeah, uh, at the end of the film, back on Tracy Island, Brains unveils Thunderbird Six, and he says, "This is tested, rescue approved," and of course, it's the Tiger Moth. The Tiger Moth comes come comes out of Thunderbird Two's hangar, and Jeff laughs his ass off and just says, "Yep, I gotta agree, it's completely approved." You know, like you said, field tested and everything. Uh, so yeah, Thunderbird, the Tiger Moth is now Thunderbird 6, which is, you know, a great ending. Um, now, Thunderbird 6, I really like it. I like that it focuses on the crew, uh, on the, um, you know, on the, the characters themselves. It focuses on Penny and Alan mainly, um, but also Tintin and Brains and gives them a lot of focus. And I really like that. I like the storyline. Like the like I said, it feels like a, the sort of the espionage plots. And we did get some of those in Thunderbirds, usually focused around Penny. So it feels like a Thunderbirds episode, just with a bigger budget uh, and a bigger plot and more drawn out. And, you know, whereas Thunderbirds Are Go didn't, Thunderbirds Are Go felt very disjointed. This feels like a very joined narrative. It's not always great. Uh, there are some parts of the film which are, I don't know, not as entertaining. But I think it builds up to a really satisfying third act. So I'm a huge fan of it. Um there's a lot of quite intricate sequences, like the a lot of the scenes with the Tiger Moth were actually shot on location using a full-size plane. Um, you know, including the bits on the motorway, which they got into trouble with the Ministry of Transport over. Um, it was filmed on the, I want to say the M40, which was being built at the time, uh, which is a motorway that goes across the country. And... Yeah, they accidentally go. They accidentally went under one of the bridges, so the Ministry of Tra Transport had a go at them, and I think they got fined over it. Um, but yeah, like the the tense standoff with Foster and his men um, at the end, and things like brains smuggling Alan a pistol so that he can kill Foster. It's very clever, and it's very you know it fits with like the sort of tone of like a Bond film, for example. Uh, which obviously came to prominence in the 60s. So, you know, 60s was the, the Cold War. That sort of espionage stuff felt real. 
Skyship One looks lovely as well. Um, it's got this amazing silhouette, and then the actual interiors are fantastic. It looks like a really lavish, very themed Art Deco style hotel. It's great. Um, most of the puppets are recycled. I think Captain Foster is completely new. Um, but yeah, that's. But yeah, the um, the the gaping mouth puppets, uh, where they're laughing. I mean, some of them have even got fillings. You can see the fillings. They're opening and laughing their mouth so much. They've got tears streaming from their eyes. That bit is um, somewhat horrific. Uh, um, like you can see. Yeah, you can see why some people balked at that. Um, it has a cold open as well, um, which was something different from the previous film and the previous series. But yeah, I I like it. I think it's got a lot of, like I said, a lot of really good character moments in it. Um, it did end up becoming another box office failure and got a pretty poor reception, which obviously ended any plans for another sequel. Um, film critic Barry Norman said it was a showcase of technical excellence, uh, but pointed out its uh, class consciousness side. For example, noting that uh, Parker is the butt of several jokes over the course of the film. But at the same time, Parker was always... Parker was the butt of many jokes throughout Thunderbirds. So, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think part of the reason why it didn't succeed, and other people have agreed with me on this, is that the interest in Thunderbirds had definitely waned by the time it was released. Like, the series had been cancelled... Uh, you know, the final episode had been broadcast over a year ago. And... But yeah, I, I, I like it. I do. I, I, I do like it. I think there's even... There are even, for example, on the motorway sequence, there are model effects used, but they're indistinguishable, almost, from the real footage. So that shows that it, this film has some of the best sequences that Century 21 would ever create. And like I said, the explosion of the missile base is fantastic. It's this long, drawn-out, I think it's about two, three minutes of explosions, but differing explosions, different rockets and missiles are exploding and things like that. And there's a spreading fire and it's... Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. But at the same time, the whole... The whole idea of the vintage biplane being used as the rescue vehicle when surrounded by all these fantastic science fiction machines is absolutely incredible. It's, it's a really good juxtaposition, um, which I think works as an adult, but maybe not so much as a kid. Because as a kid, you're like, oh, it's a little plane, it's boring. Um, but yeah, this, this, I think when I was a kid, I liked Thunderbirds Argo more 
Um, and I like that less as an adult, whereas I like this less as a kid, and I like it more as an adult. I think this is the film that has aged better. Um, you know, I mean... alone in that and there might be some people who are not a fan of it but yeah i really like it and i think of the three films that we have for thunderbirds it's definitely the best one and i think it's a nice fitting end to the series which works because it focuses on the characters and does it really bring closure to any of their stories no but Thunderbirds didn't have story arcs like that, so it doesn't need to bring them closure. What it does is just tell a really entertaining adventure story with a really good action climax that works. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah. If you watch Thunderbirds and you get invested in it, try the movies out. Um... And yeah, I think you might like them, especially I think you might like Thunderbird 6. There's one more continuation of Thunderbirds, which I just want to briefly mention. I'm not going to delve into it because I haven't actually seen it. Um, but Japan, um, Thunderbirds became very, very popular. Um, the use of the miniature filmmaking and the visual effects style, uh, you know, the, the real special effects um, that they were using in Thunderbirds is very similar to the Japanese uh, genre of tokusatsu, um, which is more popularly exemplified by kaiju films like Godzilla and uh, superhero shows such as Super Sentai, which became Power Rangers over in America. And tokusatsu filmmaking or visual filmmaking, uh, you know, I think it stands for special effects filming, um it basically thunderbirds became quite a good example of that and so obviously as you can imagine thunderbirds is quite popular in japan as a result um you know certain shows were inspired by it um you know japanese they they did their own super marionation shows for example um you know, complete with puppets uh, in the 60s, uh, inspired by the sort of things that you saw in Thunderbirds. But also, there was an anime series called Scientific Rescue Team Techno Voyager, um, which, when it was dubbed into English, was loosely inspired by the original Thunderbirds. And... It was dubbed into English by ITC Entertainment, the company who produced Thunderbirds, but obviously had no involvement from either Jerry or Sylvia. And is set in 2086 and chronicles the adventures of the Techno Voyager, which is obviously a portmanteau of Technology Boy and Voyager, and is a rescue team portrayed as the Thunderbirds working for the International Rescue Organization. Um, but again, this came from the original anime. In the original anime, there were Thunderbirds as well. And 
you know, rather than being a small-scale family-run industry, this is an organisation with numerous branches that are overseen by the World Federation. Um, so, yeah, that exists. That's a thing that exists. And it does have an ongoing story arc, like many Japanese anime, uh, revolving around a breakaway independence group known as the Shadow Axis, um, which could possibly be led by an alien entity called Star Crusher. Um, and yeah, there's like 15 different ships which can all kind of combine together in this. I, th I think I've seen a couple of episodes when I was a kid. I didn't think much of it then. Um, but, I, you know, it has its fans. And again, it is a thing that exists. So, yeah in case you want any more Thunderbirds, but puppets aren't your thing, try an anime. Now to discuss the darkest part of Thunderbird's history, the 2004 film. <laughs> now, the Thunderbird's film in 2004, it had been in development since the 90s, uh, back when Thunderbird's was having its first big revival. Um, it went through multiple directors before finally it landed in the hands of Jonathan Frakes, otherwise known as Commander Riker from Star Trek, who obviously had established himself as a director at this point, not only with his television work on Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and Star Trek Voyager, but also the feature film efforts of Star Trek First Contact and Star Trek Insurrection. I do not think Jonathan Frakes is a bad director. I think he is a very competent director he knows you know he doesn't just just do for example shot reverse shot like some directors do especially directors who work on television he is quite aware of where to place a camera and how to you know how to get the shot he wants he's also known for being very quick because he got started directing working on television where timing was a factor so he's a remarkably quick director um, and, you know, he's a good action director as well. Watching Star Trek First Contact, Star Trek First Contact is his first feature film and probably his best feature film as well. The action scenes are directed fantastically. The, uh, the choice of where to place the camera, where to place people within the shot, it's all very, very well done and... 
there are some horrifying scenes in that film as the Borg go across the Enterprise and assimilate, assimilate it. And, yeah, it's very well done. But I don't see the same finesse, I should say, and not the same effort. I don't think that's fair to him. The same finesse. I don't see that same finesse in Thunderbirds. Whether that's because he's not as familiar with the people he's working with or, or what, I'm not sure. But, or, or maybe it's just the type of film that Thunderbirds is. I don't know. I don't know how much of it was down to his direction. I don't know how much of it was due to production. But yeah, this film is not great. Cover the plot first, and then I'll go into my thoughts on the film. The plot of the film concerns the Tracy family, led by Jeff, who is again a former astronaut, played by Bill Paxton in this, who plays him very well. I have no problems with Bill Paxton as an actor. I think he's he's a very good actor. I quite like him. I think everything I've seen Bill Paxton in, I've genuinely enjoyed his performance. So, now... They operate International Rescue, obviously. Uh, they go out, they aid people during disasters in the Thunderbird machines. As a result, rather than generally being called International Rescue, they are generally referred to as the Thunderbirds. Alan is still young, lives at a boarding school in Massachusetts, and dreams of becoming a Thunderbird pilot. His best friend is Fermat Hackenbacker, a young child who is Brains' son. Uh, Brains had no uh, no children that we knew of in the original, so Fermat is a completely new creation. They get taken from the boarding school one day by P Lady Penelope and Parker. Uh, Lady Penelope is played by Sophia Miles quite early on in her acting career. Um... You know, this was a couple of years before her appearances as Madame de Pompadour in Doctor Who's Girl in the Fireplace or before her appearances in Underworld Evolution, Dracula, um, Tristan and Isolde, you know, things like that, which really kind of helped um, make her more of a, a more well-recognised name. And Parker is played by Ron Cook. Ron Cook is a great British actor um, who's been in a lot of great things. Again, he would also appear in Doctor Who. He appeared in the episode The Idiot's Lantern two years later in 2006. Um, but yeah, Ron Cook is just one of those actors I, I can never think what it is I actually know him from. But I know him from things, if that makes sense. You know, he's one of those... You know, you've seen him in multiple things. But you can never narrow it down to a specific thing. He's one of those... One of a, a recurring selection of English character actors, essentially. And he does a, he does a brilliant job as Parker. Um, you know... Parker is a character that I think you have to get right in um, 
in Thunderbirds because of how popular he is. And I think, yeah, I think Ron Cook does a very good job. Um, no, yeah, the Penelope and Parker take Alan and Fermat back to Tracy Island as the Thunderbirds are returning from fighting a fire and oil rig at the Russian coast. Unbeknown to them, though, the Hood, played in this by Sir Ben Kingsley, who is doing a brilliant job. Um, again, Ben Kingsley, fantastic actor. Um, he just seems to be having fun in the role and is doing a great job. Um, the Hood in this has a vendetta against Jeff for abandoning him in a collapsing mine uh, while rescuing his brother Carano. So the Hood blames Jeff for leaving him for dead and plants a tracking beacon with one of his... Um, one of his associates being one of the people rescued from the uh, oil rig, uh, plants the tracking beacon on the hull of Thunderbird 1. The Hood submarine, therefore, goes to Tracy Island, fires a missile at the orbiting Thunderbird 5, which sends all of the Tracys in Thunderbird 3 to rescue John. The Hood and his minions then arrive on the island, take it over, imprison the Tracys in Thunderbird 5 as their oxygen starts to run out, and he reveals that he plans to use the Thunderbirds to rob the major banks of the world, not only plunging the monetary system into chaos, but also blaming the Thunderbirds for doing it, um, therefore leaving them disgraced. Alan, Fermat and Tintin, played by Vanessa Hudgens. Uh, I think this is pre-high school musical Vanessa Hudgens as well. So... Uh, yeah, Thunder High School Musical would come a couple of years later. So, yeah, she's uh, rather young in this. Um, they all manage to escape the Hood and his, uh, hood and his men and use a ventilation shaft to reveal to reach the Thunderbird silos where Fermat takes Thunderbird 2's guidance chip, which delays the Hood plans, and they flee into the island's jungle. While they're traversing the jungle to find the island's remote transmitter to get a message to Thunderbird 5, uh, Tintin displays psychic powers, just like her uncle. Um, Alan insists on confronting the villains. He's got a very sort of gung-ho, let's do that we can beat them kind of attitude. But Jeff tells them to wait for Penny to come and help. Um... You know, while this is happening, there's a there's a disaster brewing that Penny's watching on TV and realizes that the Thunderbirds aren't coming and wonders why. So, you know, they arrive and you know engage the Hood's minions. Meanwhile, Fermat and Tintin get captured when Alan tries to um, to sort of go off on his own and not listen to them. Uh, you know, giving him a sort of you know, like an arc of stop trying to think so self-centeredly, be part of a team kind of thing. The Hood forces Alan to give the guidance chip um, when Alan comes to try and rescue his friends uh, and he ends up locking all of them. So Brains, uh, the Caranos, because there's Carano and his wife in this. Um, you know, Alan, Tintin, Brains... Um, Fermat, 
Penelope Parker. He locks them all in a big walk-in freezer on the island. And they launch Thunderbird to, to London and use the mole to dig into the Bank of London. Uh, while doing so, they also damage the monorail line above the Thames as they drill into the vaults as they go under the Thames. Alan and company manage to escape with the ridiculous help of um, Parker's nefarious safe-cracking skills and Penelope's underwire, which she insists in quite a cringeworthy line she didn't need anyway. Um, you know, the company managed to, you know, Alan, the kids take Thunderbird 1, uh, contact the Tracys, the Tracys regain Thunderbird 5, and they get their oxygen back and start... Uh, they managed to launch Thunderbird 3 so they can come down because they were, like, locked out by the Hood's men. Um, you know, Alan and the others save the monorail in Thunderbird 4 um, and then go into the bank vault along with Jeff. Um, Parker's with them as well and Penelope. So... Yeah, they save the, the submerged monorail car in Thunderbird 4. They pursue the Hood. Uh, Fermat, Tintin and Parker take down his henchmen. The Hood locks Jeff and Lady Penelope in the vault and challenges Alan to defeat him. And Alan ends up dangling from a catwalk over the mole, which is now active, so the drills are spinning. But Tintin appears and uses her own psychic powers to defeat the Hood. The Hood taunts Alan to let him die, just as his father did. Um, but Alan, who now knows after speaking to Jeff that um, though Jeff had tried to save him and was just unsuccessful, rescues the Hood, despite everything the Hood's done. Uh, the Hood and his minions get arrested and the Tracys return to their island. Alan, Fermat and Tintin get inducted as official members of International Rescue and part for their first mission. You know, big, you know, celebratory kind of thing. It's a nice coming-of-age story for kids... But, yes, it does have issues. Let's get into the issues, shall we? One of the biggest things that stood out for me when I rewatched it recently is you can tell this is a film that was released not long after Spy Kids. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Um... Spy Kids, as a franchise, did a lot of great things. I know a lot of kids love it, and I know it holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts as a franchise. However, there were a lot of films that were influenced by Spy Kids and its runaway success. Um, and, you know, some of them were good, some of them were not, some of them got their own sequels, some of them didn't. Um... But the, the main thing they had in common was they focused on a group of kids, tried to teach them a lesson about family, usually had their parents placed in some sort of predicament, and usually focused on a lot of not very convincing CGI. And that is essentially what happens in Thunderbirds. And it's not great and it doesn't feel like thunderbirds it feels like the thunderbirds characters put into a different film where they don't belong and the cgi is not good it is 
there's some very very bad cgi in it there's tons of loving references to thunderbirds you know the mole is here the firefly is here the all of the vehicles are here and the vehicles have a mixed bag of redesigns like thunderbird 1 and thunderbird 3 look great um thunderbird 5 looks more like what we'd imagine a modern day space station to look like thunderbird 2 however is looks even less aerodynamic than the previous one and looks fatter at the same time it's really bizarre and thunderbird 4 looks more like how we would picture a modern day submersible but then means it's the most drastically different in design from the original and you know and fab one isn't a rolls royce it's a ford um it's a ford thunderbird which is a cool reference but it's not a rolls royce and the story isn't bad the 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 emotional message it's going for isn't bad it's just very rudimentary very very basic and you know the the tracy brothers themselves are played by i don't want to say necessarily unknowns but yeah i don't think many of them have done much other major acting work I think Philip Winchester, who played Scott, is the one that's done the most. And even then, looking at his Wikipedia page, it's mostly bit parts. You know, the the actor who played Gordon doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. And the actor who played um, Virgil has actually retired from acting. So, yeah, it's not great. Um Anthony Edwards, who played Mark Green on the first season, eight seasons of ER, he plays Brains. He does Brains very, very well. Um, there's a nice little reference at one point where he walks like how people interpreted the puppets to walk, although it's not how the puppets actually walked. There was a, a stage show um, performed by a couple of mime artists where they kind of mimed the puppets walking and they over-exemplified it so essentially while he's under the hood's mind control brains walks like that and it's not quite how the puppets moved but it's more how the mime artists on the stage show moved uh, and i saw that stage show when i was a kid it was it was a good stage show i liked it uh it was very popular in the 90s uh, you know people walking around with the actual thunderbird ships on their head while dressed in the costume making the noises it was it was hilarious um but is it a great film no no it was it was not successful it was a bomb it was a a huge bomb um and it essentially destroyed jonathan frakes's directing career which I don't think is fair. Um, Jonathan Frakes, like I said, he's not a bad director. He's a, a very competent director. And I think, he, you know, but he never directed another feature film ever again. Um, you know, the film holds a a 19% Rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, 
where it describes it as a live action cartoon for kids, which isn't wrong. You know, that is how it feels. It has cartoon sound effects, for example. It even has like at one point, Fermat reaches his hand to grab Thunderbird 2's levers ready to use it with Alan. And it's a puppet hand, you know, mimicking the fact that the puppets would have realistic hands whenever they were performing an intricate action. Um, you know, because it would be a real person in the cost a replica of the costume with like a prop. <sighs> yeah. Um Jerry Anderson was originally invited to do a act as a creative consultant, but got left out when the studio felt there were enough employees as part of the creative team. Um they then offered him money to attend the premiere. They offered him seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Um, but he said he couldn't accept money from people he hadn't worked for, which is amazing. Uh, how many people are there in Hollywood with that integrity? Um, he eventually saw the film on DVD and was very disappointed. He declared it was disgraceful that such a huge amount of money was spent with people who had no idea what Thunderbirds was about and what made it tick, and he later described it as the biggest load of crap I have ever seen in my entire life. Um, Sylvia Anderson, um, they'd separated for years by this point. Um, you know, Sylvia Anderson was the one who was responsible for most of the character development in Thunderbirds. She got given a private screening of the film and she was much more positive about it than Jerry was. She said, I felt that it had been on a wonderful Thunderbirds adventure. You, the fans, will, I'm sure, appreciate the sensitive adaptation, and I'm personally thrilled that the production team have paid us the great compliment of bringing to life our initial concept for the big screen. If we had made it ourselves, and we have had over 30 years to do it, we could not have improved on this new version. It is a great tribute to the original creative team who inspired the movie all those years ago. It was a personal thrill for me to see my characters come to life on the big screen and I like that quote because she's just proud that more people are experiencing it even though it's different to what she created she's proud that it inspired something that hopefully people will like and I'm sure this film does have fans you know and I'm sure kids, I'm pretty sure that some kids at the time loved it. And, you know, fair play to them. And, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of it. But I do think it definitely had an effect on what was to come with Thunderbirds, for better or worse. And, yeah, it's it's not a great film, um, but I don't think it necessarily deserves some of the hate it gets, um, especially Jonathan Frakes as a director, but also, also the, um, you know, the lambasting of it. It's, if, you, if you go into it with the mindset of it's an adaptation of Thunderbirds, you know, and that it's it's very, very different from what you experienced before. I'm sure you'll probably enjoy it. But uh, it wouldn't be the first thing in the franchise I'd recommend to anyone. However, the theme song, Thunderbirds Are Go, performed by Busted, that is a banger. That is a brilliant song. Love it. 
loved Busted back in the day. And yeah, that song is fantastic. As I said, after the original Thunderbirds concluded and after the work was done on the films and the the show had been cancelled by Lou Grade, Jerry Anderson and Century 21 Productions carried on working on a number of different um, shows. Uh, eventually, they abandoned Super Mario Nation after the um, very poor reception that uh, Lou Grade gave to the Stanley Unwin-focused series um the secret service done because jerry anderson was a huge fan of british comedian and actor stanley unwin and eventually the puppets were retired and they moved into live action shows they worked on shows such as ufo and space 1999 both of which um were quite successful in their own right um and then jerry anderson later in life worked on a show called space uh, space precinct um, which I think evolved from a pilot he created called Space Police. There was also a show in the 80s that returned to puppets, but not Super Marionation puppets. These were like more traditional puppet effects with Terror Hawks. Um, but the 90s resurgence into Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet and Stingray helped sort of create a new demand for those shows. As a result, Jerry Anderson was given the chance to begin work on reimagining one of his shows. And he did originally want to do Thunderbirds again. Thunderbirds remained Jerry Anderson's favourite of the original shows that he worked on. Um, but I believe he wanted to test it with another one first. So essentially in 1999... Uh, Jerry Anderson supervised the production of a computer-animated test film featuring two of the original actors for Captain Scarlet and Captain Blue for Captain Scarlet and the Return of the Mistrons to explore the possibility of updating some of his Super Marionation series for a 21st century uh, audience. And it was successful. There was a lot of popular response to the Return of the Mistrons, and so they began work with a moving picture company using Maya software, motion capture technology, um, to essentially create a brand new Captain Scarlet series. So that ended up being premiered as Jerry Anderson's new Captain Scarlet. Unfortunately, it was given a rather atrocious time slot as part of the Saturday Morning's Children Entertainment Show Ministry of Mayhem. Um, this was released in 2005. Ministry of Mayhem, um, for those who are aware of Saturday Mornings in the early 2000s, 
and late 90s. Ministry of Mayhem was a show fronted by Holly Willoughby and um, Stephen Mulhern. And it was very, very good, but it was following in the wake of SMTV. Um, SMTV had been hosted by Kat Dealey and Anton Deck and was consistently one of the best-rated shows on a Saturday. Um, you know, I know I knew adults that tuned in Saturday to SMTV Live purely to watch Ant Deck and Cat get up to the mischief that they got up to. And Ministry of Mayhem, like SMTV, became less about the shows that were a part of the programming block um which you also couldn't schedule because in tv listings it would just be listed as ministry of mayhem so you didn't know exactly what time in that two hour three hour block of programming captain scarlet would be coming on you just knew that it would be coming on and it would probably be broken in two halves and surrounded by a whole load of nonsense and sketches and all sorts of other things because you know, Ministry of Mayhem like SMTV before, it was essentially a massive variety show, a children's variety show, but nowhere near as successful as SMTV. I think everyone liked SMTV Live. No one really had an interest in, in Ministry of Mayhem. I know I was a bit too too old for it by that point. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the thing... SMTV Live that it was following was famous for having shows like Pokemon um, and yeah Ministry of Mayhem did not so yeah um, so Captain Scarlet well from what I can tell from what I can tell new Captain Scarlet was very well received um, by viewers and fans and new fans as well as well as original ones and, but, you know, Jerry Anderson claimed that, you know, they took my half-hour show, cut the titles off, cut it in half. It wasn't listed, so people who watched Ministry of Mayhem had to wait and watch all the nonsense going on before the first half. And when it finished, they didn't say if there was a second half or when it was going to start. And after they had shown all the episodes legally, it had to be cited as a repeat, so it never had a premiere. It just broke my heart. And... I completely agree with him. I, I I think it's a shame that new Captain Scarlet got overlooked because of this. So as a result, because new Captain Scarlet wasn't necessarily the success that people wanted it to be, it meant that Thunderbirds never saw a reimagining um, in Jerry Anderson's life. Jerry Anderson died in December 2012 because he couldn't get funding or finance for it. But the interest was still there. And so, for the anniversary of Thunderbirds, in April 2015, Thunderbirds Are Go premiered. Not to be confused with the film that released earlier. It was produced by ITV Studios and Pukeko Pictures, and it was essentially a reboot from the ground up of the Thunderbirds concept. 
and having rewatched it, having watched all of it for the first time recently, it's magnificent. It really is. Um, it actually did have Jerry Anderson's seal of approval because Richard Taylor, the founder of Weta Workshop, who I mentioned extensively in my Lord of the Rings um, episode, visited Jerry Anderson at Pinewood Studios while he was working on New Captain Scarlet and pitched Thunderbirds Are Go to him. And basically production began June 2013 at Weta Workshop, where Weta Workshop was responsible for building all of the models of the sets, essentially. Because how Thunderbirds Argo would be filmed was that everything was done in-house by Weta. Um, so both Weta Digital and Weta Workshop. Weta Workshop built sets and vehicles. And around those sets and vehicles using Weta Digital, they would impose um digital creations of the characters and the thunderbirds machines as well as other special effects to create the show um each series had 26 episodes around for three series and eventually came to a conclusion uh in february 2020 the each of the episodes was split each of the seasons was split into multiple parts um and yeah, it's it's very very good. We'll get, we'll get into it. The premise is very similar to what you'd expect for a Thunderbird show. It's set in twenty sixty. It follows the exploits of the Tracy brothers, uh, Scott, Virgil, Alan, Gordon, and John, who form the backbone of International Rescue. They're based at Tracy Island in the South Pacific Ocean. They use the Thunderbird machines to save people from disasters and dangerous situations using the Thunderbird craft each one operated by one of the brothers. In addition to the brothers, though, International Rescue also includes additional members. Um, their chief of security is a reimagined version of Tintin, and that uh, who is called in this Tanusha Ko Karano, generally given the nickname Ko. Um, she is responsible for conducting uh, covert and security operations. She even has a specialised Thunderbird called Thunderbird Shadow that allows her to do it. It has stealth capabilities. Brains, who is much more prominent than this and is voiced by uh, Kaven Novak, um, most prominent as in recent years as Nandor the Relentless in What We Do in the Shadows. He voices Brains and he does a fantastic job. Um, Brains' stutter is not quite as pronounced as it was in the original series, but it is still there. Um, and he is responsible for essentially guiding a lot of the rescues, uh, providing technological and mechanical support. Uh, Grandma Tracy, who in this is voiced by British actress Sandra, Sandra Dickinson, she is fantastic in this. There's a running joke in this that she can't cook. She's much younger and more active than the previous version of Grandma Tracy. Um, you know, she's... Uh, she's uh, she's usually depicted in a tracksuit, for example. Um, and she's essentially their maternal support for the boys. Um... And she's very, very good in the role. She does she does very, very well. Um, and then, obviously, we also have Lady Penelope, voiced in this by Rosamund Pike. And um, 
Parker, voiced again fantastically by David Graham. Um, and Parker's um, past as a, a former thief and a former ne'er-do-well is uh, much more prominent in this. He, he sort of joins Penelope in spy work and espionage work. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Most of the rescues involve them contending with disaster caused by unforeseen incidents or the actions of criminals, but a number of them are orchestrated by the Hood. Uh, the Hood in this is a much more prominent role than he ever was before, and he despises international rescue and seeks to steal their technology while conducting crimes in order to make him wealthy, similar to his motivations in the original. However, I do believe it's also said that um, Jeff Tracy failed to rescue him, which obviously was inspired by the 2004 film. The Hood is known to the brothers at the start, and he's responsible for the loss of their father, Jeff. Um, Jeff is the founder of International Rescue. He's also a close friend of Colonel Casey, the head of the Global Defence Force, um, and she was, you know, she was also a, a close ally of International Rescue, helping them get clearance to act in a lot of incidences. So Jeff being missing is obviously one of the biggest deviations from the original. Um, and is obviously a key focus of the plot, um, and especially the character development. Um, Thunderbirds Are Go is very serialised in a way, in terms of its character arcs, but also very episodic at the same time. It's kind of hard to explain. It's um, a juxtaposition that I've noticed exists in a lot of um, modern-day television, where the actual events of the episode will be epi uh, episodic, but there are narrative hooks that are carried forward, and especially in terms of character development. For example, the characters of the Tracy brothers in this, they are not as static as they were in the original. Um, and in fact, if anything, I think they're more well-rounded in this than they were in the original. Um, you know, Scott is desperately trying to fill the void left by his father and trying to lead his brothers and remain strong and there's a whole episode devoted to that where Virgil kind of calls him out on it um John gets a lot more focus in you know in Thunderbird 5 um he's given an AI partner called Eos which he's able to interact with and John who's voiced by um Thomas Brody Sangster the actor who played uh Jojen Reed in Game of Thrones um as well as uh, Ferb in Phineas and Ferb. He's he's very good as John, um, and does an absolutely brilliant job. He's mainly responsible for coordinating a lot of the rescues, similar to Jeff's role in the original series. You know, John is often responsible for coordinating the rescue, guiding it, reacting to new information and changes in the situation in the way that Jeff used to do 
Virgil is more of a, a peaceful middle child. Um, in the original series, we'd see Virgil quite often doing things like playing the piano or um, painting, and that's really kind of explored in this. There's the, a whole episode where, as part of the subplot, uh, while he's waiting for the others underground, he learns how to make topiary. And, like, we see him create a topiary of Thunderbird 2, which then gets destroyed as part of the episode. And, yeah, he's just um, more laid back, more of a diplomat, more of a peacemaker between the the brothers. The brothers are also a lot younger in this. Um, and I should add, they look remarkably like the old puppets, um, with the exception of Gordon, in in my view. But yeah, they all look remarkably like the, the old puppets, especially Scott and Virgil. Um, Gordon and Alan are both a lot younger than they were in the original series. Um, you know, Alan is much more of a young teenager, like he is in the 2004 film, but not quite as reckless as that. Um, it's implied that he sort of... Like, one episode outright says that he, he barely remembers Dad like Jeff, he's really struggling to remember him and he kind of needs his brothers for that and yeah, it's quite sweet um, obviously because he's younger, you don't really have the romantic tension with Tintin and Lady Penelope that the original series explored especially in the movies so the romantic tension with um, Penelope gets shifted onto Gordon. Gordon in this is not quite the out-and-out -out hero that the original Gordon was. There's a lot of episodes in the original series where Gordon is the central focus hero. He gets a lot of the, the cool action stuff to do. Um, like I mentioned in Perils of Penelope, he's the one that, that invo is involved in a shootout um, with people. Um, and there's not quite as much of that here, but there is, for example, in season three, there's an arc where Gordon gets left very seriously hurt after something that the Hood has put in motion. Um... But yeah, it's it's very interesting. The the main crux of the show, the show also follows a different format than the original series, I should say. The original series is this, um, I mean, each of the episodes is about 45 minutes, so it runs at about an hour with adverts. These ones average about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, and that's because they then make half an hour with an adverts. And... It does mean that a lot of things happen very quickly. Um, there are multiple part episodes, quite a few of them actually. Um, like the opening episode is a two-parter uh, with two separate rescues. There's also, because of the, the wider range of special effects we can perform today, there's a lot more, for example, space rescues than there were in the original. Um... Uh, and also because we have more of an idea of what space travel and future science fiction will look like um, 
you know, as we've explored more of space ourselves than we had in the 60s, um, that's kind of taken into account. So Thunderbird 3 gets used on rescues quite a lot in this, whereas it's only in a handful of rescues in the original series. Um, Thunderbird 4 also gets quite a lot of rescues as well. Um, but again, greater knowledge of what the ocean depths are like plays a part. Like, they explore crush depth and the idea of, um, you know, not being able to survive outside of Thunderbird 4 without a highly pressurised suit, um, you know, and the time limit that that would give you is explored. So many of the rescues in this do focus and or include elements from the original series while centering on new characters. So, for example, there's one quite prominent episode where um, involved, which is basically a remake of the original series premiere, the the Trapped in the Sky with Fire Flash, and features a very modern take on its plot where Ko is on the plane just as Tintin was in the original. The Hood hijacks it, and you know the Thunderbirds have to bring it down. They use the rescue vehicles to do so. Um, they also... The, the Thunderbirds are the main vehicles they use. There are also what they call pod vehicles. And all of the Thunderbirds have pods, uh, which are essentially multi-mission craft that can be outfitted for a number of specific roles rather than bespoke equipment like the mole or the firefly so or or you know the the landing rescue craft um instead the pods are like multi-purpose and thunderbird 5 has its own pods so john actually does get involved in rescues as well in space um thunderbird 3 has a pod inside it it also has a a sort of gravity board that alan uses to kind of surf through space in a few episodes which is very very cool um I believe even Thunderbird 1 has a pod that it's able to deploy uh, on missions, but Scott also gets a jetpack as well, which he's able to use. Um, Thunderbird 2 usually carries several pods, and they have access to several equipment sets each. Um, so, yeah, the, the only kind of bespoke rescue vehicle that would be carried in Thunderbird 3 is Thunderbird 4 in Thunderbird 2 sorry is Thunderbird 4 <laughs> but yeah it's uh so that's an interesting change they also a lot of episodes also feature unique characters that only have one appearance however several that are created for Thunderbirds Ogo do have recurring appearances with them being put in new situations that they need rescuing from again um however the characters themselves aren't necessarily the focus of the storyline like you know um i mean there are a couple that like there's reese darby from uh, flight of the concords he plays a character who recurs called langstrom fisher who's another inventor and businessman but kind of offsets the need for health and safety precautions a lot of the time and that backfires by putting him and his workers in mortal danger uh, so the Thunderbirds then have to rescue him or um, Jack Whitehall as uh, who's a British comedian from um, oh, Fresh Meat um, 
as the character Francois Le Maire, who's this billionaire who makes out that he's an explorer, but he's not. He's a giant fraud. <laughs> and it's like he ends up in situations where he has to be continually rescued because he won't listen to the Thunderbirds when they tell him, no, don't do this, it's ridiculously dangerous. And he's like, oh, you're just you're just jealous, you want all the glory for yourself. And, you know, but those... But Fisher and Lemaire and other characters like Ned Tedford, they're not the focus of a storyline, they're just normally the, pe the person who is at risk. Um... You know, the the storylines mainly focus on either the Tracy brothers themselves or the villains for the season. And I say villains for the season because there are multiple villains. Um, the first season generally focuses on the hood, reimagines a lot of Thunderbirds' biggest adventures um, and updates them for a new setting as well as its own ideas. And towards the end of the ep the end of the season, the Hood attacks Tracy Island himself, reveals that Ko is his niece, um, which she had been trying to keep separate from the brothers for fear that they wouldn't trust her anymore. Um, but gets outfoxed by uh, Ko and Com Grandma and Brains and his robotic assistant Max. Um, so yeah, they managed to defeat the hood uh, and he gets arrested and taken away by the gdf um so in his absence in the second series they introduce a new villain um called the mechanic who has this quite elaborate mask and this elaborate tribal tattoo on his arms and controls these terrifying machines that cause havoc around the world and eventually he helps break the hood out of prison um, but then the hood turns on him and it, it turns out that the mechanic is under the hood's control and has been the entire time and you know the, the mechanic then tries to fight the hood to regain control of his life with the Thunderbirds kind of caught in the middle um, but eventually surrenders on the condition that Brains helps him to secure his freedom which Brains offers to do then in the third season, um, after, you know, with the Hood free, the Hood forms a pair of villains together called the Chaos Crew, and they're two siblings called Havoc and Fuse, and the Hood basically sends them on missions to create worldwide chaos and cause problems for both the GDF and International Rescue. But at the same time as dealing with them, the... The Tracy brothers also learn that Jeff might possibly be alive. They learn that he tried to stop the Hood from stealing Zero X um, during its maiden flight, and it was testing like this advanced space travel engine. And the Zero X was presumed destroyed. Uh, the Hood escaped. Jeff Tracy was presumed killed. However, while during a space mission, they pick up um, a general distress signal uh, on through a robot who is an adaptation of a robot character that Brains created called Brahman in the original series. 
And Brahman in this has picked up a distress call, which is why he's brought this colony ship back to Earth prematurely. Um, so after they save the colony ship, they then save Brahman. And they learn that the, the distress signal was actually picked up on the outer edges of the solar system. And it was picked up by Jeff... It was transmitted by Jeff Tracy. And they find... You know, that then leads into an adventure where they find the Zero X escape pod that the Hood used. And that's where they find out that, no, there's an alternate angle of the Zero X's destruction, which reveals that, no, it didn't actually get destroyed. The drive, the 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 acceleration drive to propel it worked, and it was sent into the Oort cloud, um, which is the, the cloud of debris at the outer edges of the solar system. And the Zero X was lost out there, and Jeff is presumably still on it. And so the Thunderbirds work together. They build a brand new Zero X. They get the mechanic to help them build a new engine. So we learn that the mechanic built the original hyperdrive engine for the Zero X. And they build the Zero XL, which is essentially all of the Thunderbird craft, I think except for Shadow, combined together with a Zero X, including Thunderbird 5, that jumps to the outer edge of the gal of the solar system to find Jeff Tracy. And in the final two episodes, they, they find Jeff Tracy. Jeff Tracy, um, played by Lee Majors, uh, you know, famous for playing the $6 million man. And yeah, they, they find Jeff Tracy and they bring him home. And... They bring not only do they bring him home, they also capture the hood because the hood follows them out as well, and they capture the hood and surrender him to the GDF. I think the Chaos Crew escape, but by that point, I mean season three was released in three chunks across uh, twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, and twenty twenty, and the series came to a close. And it was a perfect place to end it. Like those final two episodes are brilliant um they're called the longest reach i believe and yeah they are just lovely lovely episodes as you know the crew get you know they bring jeff tracy home um and You know, the, the Zero XL that they create, which is all five main Thunderbirds with the Zero X rocket. It's it's brilliant. I would love a toy of that. <laughs> like I had the Thunderbirds. I still have a few Thunderbirds toys. Um, and I would love that, like the toy of the Zero XL. I don't think they ever made one, but if they did, I'd love it. Um, and yeah, the, the series ends with, the crew the you know internet the tracy brothers all responding to a new rescue as jeff jeff tracy assumes his seat behind the desk and just says international rescue how can we help Mwah. absolutely beautiful just chef's kiss perfect moment that tugged on the heartstrings and brought everything to a close and it was fantastic I think Thunderbirds Argo might be one of my favourite reimaginings of 
an old property. Um, because I think it kept all of the core values of Thunderbirds, but with a better focus. I think the characters are much better in Thunderbirds Are Go than they are in the, even in the original show, as much as I love the original show. Um, I think the... The setting is better. Um, they're still implied to be a... A uni- a, you know, a unified world government. I think there's implied to have been a war in the, the recent past which caused the world government to unify. But the original series premiered in the 60s during the height of the Cold War. So there was a lot of focus on military assets or, you know, they were having or confrontations with the Navy. The World Navy is quite prominent. Uh, and... This doesn't have that. The rescues focus a lot more on people. And the only military we ever really see is the Global Defence Force, which isn't a military. It's named the Global Defence Force. Like, it's a military, but it's not structured like a military. It's not It's not called the World Army. You know, it's a defence force. Um... And the focus on the characters is great. I mean, you know, the mechanic is a great character with a a real tragic story when it starts to unravel and get developed. Um, Even have a confuse. There are elements in their final episodes where Fuse, the, um, the, the brother of the two, feels like maybe he's upset at the things the hood is making them do like when the hood tells them to leave gordon for dead um you know he is he's upset by it he's visually bothered by it um so yeah and there's yeah it's just it's a great updating of the show and the thunderbird craft all look like the originals I think the only one that doesn't is Thunderbird 5, which again looks like a more modern space station, uh, but still has a lot of the round designs. Uh, It looks like the original Thunderbird 5 kind of tilted on its side, to be honest, but with enough updates to make it more modern. But at the same time, as well as looking like the originals, they are updated. Like Thunderbird 3, its pylon struts can now come forward as like grasping arms to grab things in space which is great so yeah i think it was a good show i think it was a good ending it also has much better representation than the original show did the original show is plagued by being part of the 60s and you know the 60s was not great for representing women it was not great for representing people of color i don't think there's any people of color in the original thunderbirds except for tintin carano and the hood uh, <laughs> you know um so whereas in this um you know ko and brains are both given are, are both non-white 
and both give a much better representation. Um, Penelope and Ko both get a lot more to do, as does Grandma Tracy. Grandma Tracy is just a much better character in this than she is in the original. Um, and Colonel Casey um, is also a woman uh, and also a person of colour. So, uh, again, another piece of great representation as, you know, their strongest ally. Even the mechanic is, isn't white. You know, he is a person of colour. So it's as is Fuse as well, thinking about it. So, yeah, it's just better representation all around. And I think that really helps the you know the people that they rescue. There are women. There are um, people of color. There are kids, and it's all well done. Like one one episode features two kids getting trapped inside a crab logger. Um, a, you know, a reference to the original crab logger from Path of Destruction. Um, and one of the kids is disabled, but they're scouts and they're they're trapped in the crab logger during a forest fire. So the Thunderbirds then have to come to rescue them. It's just great. Representation is important. I am a strong proponent of representation, as you probably gathered from my previous episodes, because it matters that people see people that resemble them, especially kids. And I think this show is a great reimagining of Thunderbirds that also includes more representation. Um... But that's not the only reason why it's great. It's just one thing that definitely helps. And yeah, it's not often that I've watched a reimagining of something and thought that is as good, if not better, than the original. I mean, it does happen sometimes. I mean, but, you know, for example, I... I said in my Star Trek episode, for example, that I liked Star Trek Deep Space Nine much more than any other Star Trek. But Star Trek Deep Space Nine isn't a reimagining of the original series. It's inspired by it, but is something completely new. Whereas this is a reimagining of Thunderbirds. And it is great. Yeah, it is. It's great. I think all the cast do a brilliant job. And I think it is a hidden gem. You know, does all of it hold up necessarily for a, for a watch as an adult? No, it's still a it is a kid show. But there are some great episodes there, and plenty to like. And it's funny as well. Like not just is it heartwarming when it wants to be, uh, or heartrending when it wants to be. But it's also funny. There are some really good jokes in it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I think Jerry Anderson would be very proud of it. I think Sylvia was a fan of it before she passed herself. In 2016, she even had a guest role in one of the episodes um, playing Lady Penelope's Aunt Sylvia. Um, where she was fantastic. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's definitely worth a watch. Definitely. Sorry, everyone. We have a situation.
This is Jeff Tracy of International Rescue. How may we be of assistance? There's a story that Jerry Anderson told once about how he realised how popular Thunderbirds was. Not just with children and fans of the show, but with real-world scientists, inventors, engineers. And he says it surprised him. Essentially, Jerry Anderson had an interest in aircraft from his boyhood days. His brother Lionel was a pilot in the RAF during World War II. That interest took him to Feltham, England, where the aircraft Concorde was being built. And a design engineer gave Jerry Anderson a tour of the facility. He quotes, I was dreading that he would ask me what work I did because here was a state-of-the-art aircraft, supersonic, and here I was, a filmmaker of puppet shows. Now, the engineer did indeed ask Anderson what he did for a living, but Anderson remained evasive until he finally offered only that he was in the film business, and finally later that he was a producer. The engineer persisted. Finally, I mumbled, Thunderbirds, says Anderson. The response was electric. I was told don't move and he ran upstairs and all of the designers came down with him they talked to me for an hour all of them were fans they even had a theory about how thunderbird 2 would fly if it were built quite amazing i thought they would all sort of laugh in fact when concord did actually make its maiden flight to toulouse france to be unveiled it was greeted by the band of the royal marines striking up barry gray's thunderbirds march which was also performed by the band of the Royal Marines for the closing credits of the Thunderbirds Argo film. Thunderbirds is a good show. It is a very impactful show. And I think if you are a fan of science fiction, the works of Jerry Anderson including Thunderbirds, but not just Thunderbirds, all of them, are very much worth your time. They present a hopeful vision of the future in a similar way to Star Trek before them, um, you know, which was also a contemporary and, ironically enough, also... uh, a comic strip that was published in TV Century 21. Um, You know, these shows present a positive vision of the future where people work together, where, you know, technology is capable of incredible feats, but also respected and revered and I think that it is worth watching because of that you know it's in some respects it's a very very simple show in other respects it's a very very lovely show 
and it's a show that definitely had an impact on me growing up you know I loved Thunderbirds I loved Captain Scarlet I loved Stingray but Thunderbirds for me was always the best one in part because of how it stood out amongst contemporaries like I said the the longer runtime really helped um, to get you invested in this amazing world before things went wrong and then you were you were with the Thunderbirds every step of the way as this ramping tension continued to escalate before they eventually saved the day because they always saved the day because we it'd be nice to think that good guys did always save the day and that people in need were helped so yeah I really hope that if you haven't seen Thunderbirds before ever first of all how how have you not even heard of this show secondly I hope I've encouraged you to check it out to look at it because like everything I talk about here I think it's worth your time I don't I talk about things on this podcast that obviously matter to me but I also talk about them because I think they are worth your time and I want to encourage people to go and watch these things go and explore these things so yeah if you have seen Thunderbirds if you have seen Thunderbirds are go especially please reach out to me at all the usual places I would love to talk with you about it and see what your thoughts are let me know your your favourite rescue your favourite pilot your favourite ship um you know but until next time um stay safe look after each other look after your mental and physical health same as I always do and if you are struggling ever then reach out to someone someone you know people care people will help you you know don't don't suffer in silence reach out and get rescued until next time thank you very much for listening to Gardo Goes Geek if you enjoyed this episode please feel free to recommend it to your friends if you would like to get in touch with me to discuss a topic or an idea for a future episode or to give feedback on the episode you just listened to or any of our others then you can reach me at any of my social medias I am at Gardo on Reddit at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter or at Gardo on Instagram all of my social media links as well as links for everywhere this podcast can be found are contained on Linktree slash Gardo thank you for listening and until next time